It's a very special edition of the uh, Fan Drive Time. I am Ben Ennis on Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Uh, you may notice it's, it's 1 o'clock, which isn't even close to drive time, but it's a special edition because we are going to bring you the introductory press conference for former Grizzly Suns and Thunder assistant coach Darko Royakovich, new head coach of the Toronto Raptors at 44 years old, uh, becomes the next head coach of the Toronto Raptors. This was a long, exhaustive search. We're getting into the final days before the June 22nd NBA draft. A lot of big names involved uh, during the interview process. I mean, we had Steve Nash. We had Kenny Atkinson, who uh, both have NBA head coaching experience. Uh, limited success, actually, but both with the same team, the uh, the Nets. And Sergio Scariolo, who does not have NBA head coaching experience, but obviously has experience with this organization as a former assistant. And he has lots of head coaching experience overseas. In fact, still coaching his Italian league team in the, uh, in the playoffs in Europe. None of those guys got the job. It's a guy who's uh, 44 years old, as I mentioned, getting his first kick of the can as uh, the lead dog in the NBA. He spent a lifetime coaching starting at 16 years old in Serbia. Kind of a, a nice little moment for uh, for Serbian basketball is a day after Nikolai Jokic wins his first ever NBA title. We got uh, Darko Rojakovic becoming the first Serbian head coach of the Toronto Raptors, second ever European head coach in the history of the NBA. All right, let's send it out doors, in fact, uh, for the introductory news conference. It is Darko Rojakovic about to be announced as the new head coach of the Toronto Raptors. In addition, the Raptors acknowledge that Scotiabank Arena is located on the ancestral homelands of the Anishinaabe, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Chippewa peoples. This land, where we have the privilege to gather, play, and compete, has been governed by the dish with one spoon wampum belt for a thousand years, and in more recent times by the Williams Treaty and Treaty 13. Today, Toronto is still home to many diverse Indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, whose presence and contributions we recognize and acknowledge. As an organization, the Toronto Raptors affirm their commitment and other recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as they do to advance right relations with Indigenous peoples. Miigwech. Thank you. It's wonderful to see so many familiar faces in the audience, including Mr. Larry Tannenbaum. Happy anniversary. It was four years ago today that we were starting to plan a big parade. And also members of the MLSC Board of Directors, Executive Leaders, and of course, Raptors membership. Special welcome to Gaga Rajakovic, and in my best Serbian Gaga, Drago Mije. Thank you for all, all for being here. Few housekeeping notes before we get started. Uh, following the remarks from our guests, we will open up to a Q&A uh, from the media and then break into a photo op. Uh, I kindly ask, uh, I know it's not a movie, but could you all silence your cell phones? I just did that, put them in my pocket. Uh, today is a very exciting day, for, again, for the Raptors organization uh, as they not only introduce the 10th head coach in franchise history, but as I said, celebrate the four-year anniversary of the NBA championship. 
So without further ado, please welcome to the stage Raptors Vice Chairman and President Masai Ujiriya and your head coach, new head coach of the Toronto Raptors, Darko Ryakovich. Down here, huh? No rain. Good job. Good. I'm good. All mine. <clears throat> Opening remarks, Masai, for the people gathered. Perfect. Thank you. Wow, this is unbelievable. Um, thank you, everybody, for um, coming out. And um, first of all, Larry Tannenbaum, I think uh, Cynthia, CEO, is here. Um, to all the staff, everybody around, um, Bobby Webster, Teresa, Dan, uh, it's been an incredible uh, process for us. Uh, I know um, you have all been patiently waiting. Uh, some of you uh, impatiently waiting too. <laughs> Um, but um, we're really, really excited uh, for this day. I know it's change, and sometimes change is hard, but we believe change is good, and change is uh, good for our ball club uh, and our organization now. And it's such an honor, um, after a long process, um, choosing uh, what we feel is the right fit and an incredible coach. Um, with great passion, uh, great knowledge, um, has been part of incredible programs um, to come and lead our, uh, our beloved Raptors here. And um, we're really excited uh, to welcome uh, Coach Dalcor. Welcome, man. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you so much. Please. I gotta I got take it in for a second. Mm -hmm. this, this is amazing. Uh, thank you, first of all, everybody coming out today. Mm -hmm. Like uh, right now, I'm like that uh, duck on the, on the surface of the water that acts like everything is cool, but my feet are down there like working. <laughs> I'm really, really excited. Um, First of all, I would like to thank uh, Mr. Uh, Larry Tannenbaum and uh, his wife, Judy. I would like to th thank uh, Masai, Bobby, Teresa, Dan, um, Alex, everybody uh, from, from the organization. Uh, this is amazing, amazing privilege to represent uh, um, Toronto Raptors uh, championship organization. Uh, it's amazing uh, privilege to be part of a, a, such amazing roster. I would like to thank Joe and uh, Ron and Jeff and uh, Delano and Loco and all the guys that are here that are here to, today present, but also all other players that I, uh, I've been in touch last couple of days and talked to. Uh, this is definitely very, very exciting moment and uh, be the North. <laughs> Masai, I know you touched on it, but at this time, you had so many candidates to choose from. Why did you feel that Darko was the right fit? 
Yes, we, we did have um, many incredible um, candidates and we wanted to go through a process uh, here um, because of this, uh, where the stage uh, which our, our team is. And um, I think Darko just hit all of it. And um, depending on where um, our team uh, could be, um, we're excited. We're excited to have uh, his knowledge, uh, his experience. Um, I think the study, being, being so studious of the game, his journey, um, diversity, everything, you know, like uh, to me, uh, his incredible family, Gaga, um, it's to me, uh, it all comes together in some kind of way. And um, the process was, um, was long and tough, you know, like, but we know we came, uh, came up with the right um, uh, candidate here. I do want to thank Bobby, uh, Teresa, Dan, Keith, uh, Alex, the whole team. You know, um, I say it again, I think these guys do an incredible job with the process of um, uh, how we go through these things and all the information we need. And, uh, and also the leadership in our organization, the support we get, it's very important for us. Um, we know what our values are here. And like I said, change is good. You know, change is, is something that sometimes is tough. And um, we feel that uh, Darko um, fits it. It's a good time for the Serbs uh, right now. <laughs> you guys know. <laughs> I want to be a, you, a Masai Ujirianovic. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's what I want to be now um, with Darko, um, tennis. Uh, basketball, we saw Jokic yesterday, and now we'll bring this special guy here, so uh, no, we're glad great. to have him. We have our own Serbian superstar. Yeah. Um, Darko, you're the second ever Serbian and European-born head coach with the world breaking down barriers everywhere. What does this mean to you? Um, this means the world to me, uh, means uh, so much uh, to Serbian community uh, here in Toronto. A lot of people reached out to me. Uh, means a lot to, to uh, family back home and the uh, whole basketball community in, in Serbia. Um, I started coaching when I was 16 years old and uh, now some 27 years old, later I'm at uh, appointed to be a head coach of unbelievable organization and to, to uh, have a chance to live in an amazing city like Toronto is and uh, I'm just proud to, to be over here today and uh, to represent. Excellent, excellent. Thank you Darko. Um, we'll now take questions from uh, members of the media. If you have a question please raise your hand and a microphone will be brought to you. Please introduce yourself by stating your name uh, and your organization. Uh, Darko? It's uh, Doug Smith of the Toronto Star off to your left there. Um, obviously, in 27 years as a head coach, you would have worked for very different kinds of people. How would you, how would you describe your coaching philosophy and how you've grown as a man since you've become now at 44? Um, since the day I started coaching, uh, for me, the biggest thing that I enjoyed is seeing players get better, players improve. You know, you're going to win games, you're going to lose games. Uh, Definitely, we want to win every, every single game, every single night. 
but se seeing the team grow, seeing the players grow, seeing a, a people in whole organization grow is something that always uh, was my uh, biggest award and that's how I operate. I'm trying uh, to wake up every single day with that, that on my mind. How can I help? How can I serve? How can I improve uh, everybody in the organization? Question maybe for Bart. Both of you, I'll start with Darko, Michael Grange from Sportsnet. Just wondering your... Michael Grange from Sportsnet, <laughs> your connection uh, or relationship with Maasai and, and maybe Bobby, whoever, how did uh, you guys arrive at this place? Uh, is it long-standing and, and maybe Maasai, uh, a little bit of how you uh, arrived at, at Darko and maybe where that relationship began? Uh, you know, run into each other in a few places and I, I think uh, the admiration has always uh, been there. Um, when I was scouting and lived in Serbia, I never uh, met him at that, at that time. He was probably uh, too young. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, you know, this game takes us to incredible, incredible places, and um, the, the world always kept coming, you know, like to him, his name, um, and all our scouts, um, uh, representation from the teams have it's all uh, intertwined in some way you know and it's all related in 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 some way and um and yeah we are we find him uh we find we find him here Yeah, I'm just wondering, so was it only during this process that you guys actually met and established a relationship, or was it longstanding before that? Um, we started uh, really to get to know uh, each other through the process, uh, but there was always uh, admiration on my side uh, for what Masai and Bobby and, uh, and Larry did uh, <clears throat> uh, with the team and how much passion and commitment they have to, uh, to run the things the right way. Uh, the first time that we started uh, talking on a Zoom call, what I felt from day one was like unity and uh, everybody on the organization, you could just feel that everybody's together. And the um, very next conversation we had, I was blown away. Like when I flew over here to, to meet him in person, I, I, I needed to pinch myself like uh, to, to be in the presence of the, the best president and the best GM and the best ownership in, uh, in, in the league is, uh, is, is a huge, huge privilege. And, uh, I'm, uh, I'm just blown away from every day what I'm learning uh, about the organization and the team. You know, I just told Masai, like, last three days I had a smile on my face so much that my jaw started to hurt. So I'm really, really happy to be here. We haven't told him the bad parts yet. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Darko, Josh Lewinberg, TSN, welcome and congratulations. Thank I know you started coaching at a young age. What, what drew you to coaching initially, and who have been some of the bigger influences on your coaching style over the years? Um, so, yes, since I started coaching, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a funny story. So uh, when I start, stopped playing, I was just like 15 years old. And uh, to be honest with you, like, the, it looked like the world crashed on me. Like, I top like learning you know being good student I, I i lost my identity and when my team organized the basketball camp in my hometown for for little kids uh they invited me to to be there and coach those kids uh which started on august 2nd 96 
And the uh, funny story is that one of the kids in that group actually was uh, the brother of my, my wife, Gaga. And that's actually how we started meeting. Uh, but uh, uh, the amazing thing is, uh, like, even with those kids, they were like seven, eight years old, when I saw their improvement and, and how they grow and they got better, that's really what hooked me into the game. And over the years, I had such amazing, uh, tremendous, like, mentors. Uh, back in Serbia, great coaches. Uh, I had a great mentor with uh, Red Star Belgrade in uh, um, Marin Sedlacek, uh, who had great connections with the uh, United States and uh, working as a Nike camp director. He really approached me, uh, United States and NBA, and the way of doing things uh, overseas. And then over the years, <clears throat> I became very close friend to Željko Bradović, uh, Sergio Scariolo, um, Pablo Lasso, all the great coaches in Europe, and I was always learning from them. And then coming to the United States, I was just blessed. I was blessed to be part of the great coaching staffs and great teams to coach under um, uh, Scotty Brooks and to work with, uh, for such an organization uh, like Oklahoma City that I have like tremendous respect for, for Sam Presti and everybody there. It, all of the, the, these people made great, great influences on me as a coach. Uh, going to Phoenix and working with uh, Monty Williams and James Jones just got me to another level, learning uh, how different organizations operate. And uh, being last three years in uh, Memphis with uh, Taylor Jenkins and uh, Zach Kleiman and the team there, I just like completely like started embracing uh, the, the, the NBA and really seeing uh, that this can happen, that actually I can be here one day and being a head coach of NBA organization. So I'm very, very tr thankful and grateful for all the people in my life that helped me on this road. Hi, Darko. Welcome to Toronto, Aaron Rose, SI.com. Um, maybe the Raptors asked you this in your interview, but what do you see as your strengths as a coach and what are areas that you're looking to improve as you take over here? Um, I, see, uh, I see my love and the passion for game and uh, my commitment to the team as my biggest strength. This is not about me. This is about those guys. This is about the team, how we're going to get to the next level. My goal is not to get one player better, but all 17 players in the roster, how we can improve those guys and help those guys. Uh, so, so my core belief is when you improve players, like, then it's much easier to put strategies and tactics in, and that's going to give you a result. That's going to be your outcome. So uh, I always operate like that. Uh, for me, season does not start in October. For me, season start, started three days ago when I was appointed here as a head coach, and I'm trying to win every single day. You know, when we come in our practice facility on the board, we have a win you know, for, for every day, and we need to win every day. It's not just about winning a game. It's a winning, like, is Delano going to cut a little bit better? Is, are we going to move the ball a little bit better? Are we, are we going to be more together and more team? The more we have that, the better we're going to be, and, uh, and uh, that's going to make all of us uh, proud of our team. Hey, Darko, Vivek Jacob, Raptors.com, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned the importance of, you know, building that relationship with the players. Uh, what do you feel are the keys to connecting with your players on a human level? Um, first of all, I want to be very invested in, in uh, 
them as a human beings and as a, I see as a, every player as a, as a, a person uh, with a family, with uh, all what's going on in their lives. I want those guys to know and to feel that I really care about them and I really want to connect, uh, connect with all those, those guys on personal level. You know, when they know that how much I love them and care about them, I have a strong belief that we'll be going to come together as a group and be ready to, to take it to another level. Hey, Darko. Uh, Ryan Wolstad from the Toronto Sun. Welcome to Toronto. Congratulations. I'm just curious about uh, making the jump to the head coaching role. Um, what do you think of that transition and why you're ready for that? And what's going to change for you? Well, um, I was uh, head coach for uh, 17 years before becoming assistant coach for the first time in, in NBA. So I was in that uh, hot seat for, for many, many years uh, overseas, coaching in Serbia, coaching in Spain, coaching in G League level. So I'm very, uh, you know, familiar with the look, what it looks like to be a decision maker. Uh, and to live that life uh, day in, day out. And last uh, uh, eight, nine years being assistant coach in NBA just helped me to see it from another angle. Then I have a, a, a deep trust and a commitment in the, in the team, but also in the front office and working with Masai and Bobby and everybody in the organization. I know that we're going to be one, that we're going to be together and uh, that we will be able to elevate our team. Hey, Darko. Eric Corrine from The Athletic. Congratulations. Uh, what are your impressions of the roster as it is that you are going to be coaching? And what are some of the strengths that you're looking to highlight uh, with that roster? Um, I really like the roster, the way it's built. Um, every single day I'm getting to know those guys more uh, as a players, as a, as a people. Um, I think that uh, Masai and, and Bobby and everybody did a tremendous job over the years and they proved that they have an amazing uh, talent uh, to, to recognize the right people and the right fits. And I'm really, really excited to get to work with those guys. Hi, Orrin Weisfeld, Yahoo Sports Canada. Darko, welcome to Toronto. Um, this organization has always been very international, both in its popularity and the people who work here, players, staff. I'm wondering what it means to you to coach the only organization based outside of the United States and to kind of help grow the game internationally. That's a great question, and uh, definitely it's, it's a privilege to be part of, uh, of the uh, organization like this with uh, such an international influence and uh, a lot of diversity that we have inside the city and inside uh, the organization. And... Uh, that just proves how NBA is growing. Like 20, 30 years ago, it was kind of like you know, United States. Now it's a, such a global game, and uh, it is uh, um, the only NBA team outside of the U.S. Uh, being in Toronto over here. I could not dream about being in a better situation and in a better city to, to, to lead a team. Thank you. Uh, hello, Darko. Uh, by the way, I, I know Dani Gomez Otero. That I, you, you were working with him in Spain, in Espacio Torrelodones. Yes. Uh, yes, my question is um, related uh, with the last question. Uh, in terms of uh, European coach that uh, you have been, uh, uh, you have coached in Europe, uh, what, what can you give to the organization uh, um, from the European perspective in, in terms of the, of the game, uh, in the... In the, in the the influence of, of Europe in the, in the game. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so 
As you probably know, to be a coach in, uh, in Europe, you got to go through school. And I finished basketball school for coaches in Serbia. When I came to Spain, they made me go to school again. So <laughs> I had to do that this time in Spanish. Uh, so that's, uh, I think that I had a, a great uh, baseline to learn about biomechanics, to learn about sociology, to learn about uh, psychology, to learn about so many different aspects that are important for the game. So understanding uh, from that perspective how the game is, is played and developed, I think is going to be my uh, uh, big strength in working with everybody in the organization. And uh, I am Serbian and I'm an international coach with a broad uh, experience in NBA. Um, I always say, like, every time when the, my season is over, I go back and I watch uh, EuroLeague and I watch the best teams and learning from the best coaches, but I also watch college and learn from the best co co college coaches and I learn from NBA. Um, learning in this profession does not stop, and uh, I'm uh, eager to learn from uh, players, uh, from my coaching staff, from people in the front office. As I said, it's not about me, it's about my daily approach, how I'm going to be get better so I can be better for the team. Hi, Coach Rayakovic. John Chidley Hill from the Canadian Press. Dobro Doshli, Toronto. Thank you. I practiced. Um, <laughs> my question for you is, uh, just a couple months ago, Mr. Ujiri spoke passionately about the importance of culture on this basketball team. I'm curious, what kind of culture do you want to bring to the Raptors? Um, the most important thing for me is that it's going to be a shared vision. You know, um, knowing the team, uh, talking to Masai, talking to Bobby, talking to Larry. We really want to have an amazing group of people working together. Like that's, that's, and that's something that's off the court, but also on the court. Uh, for me, culture starts with uh, your daily commitment to yourself and your team. And that starts with, uh, with me, starts with, uh, with players, starts with everybody in the organization. And uh, that unity and that trust that we're going to have between us, it, for me, is, uh, is, is everything. Hey, Darko. Samson Folk, Raptors Republic, congratulations. Welcome to Canada. So this is a little bit more of a basketball encore question. I commend you on the conversations you've had publicly about implementing offense and talking about basketball for public consumption. Not that much of it is covered defense. What are some of the defensive principles that you have in mind for this team that can be acted by the players on the roster? Right. Um, defensively, I think uh, that one of, one of the strengths of this team is uh, the length that we have on the team and ability to do so many things from switching, from different coverages on the ball and off the ball. Um, for me, everything defensively starts with protecting the paint. If you protect the paint, after that, we're going to take away corner threes and we're going to have uh, late contested uh, wing threes. We can get in X and O's and I can draw you our schemes when we get a chance. <laughs> I would love to do that. Uh, but uh, uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to talk with, uh, with our guys as well and see their comfort level with all of these things. Uh, all decisions that I'm going to be making, uh, I'm going to consult uh, with, uh, with players and uh, people in the organization, with my coaching staff. Uh, so uh, don't worry, we're going to have really good defense. <laughs> <laughs> Coach, welcome to the city. Savannah Hamilton from Sportsnet. From your global perspective, how much have you seen the game stylistically change and grow, and where do you see it going, especially with this team? 
Um, game has changed so much, like uh, from 90s to uh, early uh, 2000s. Like even like when I came to the league 10 years ago, game was played played differently. Everybody talked about, oh, Sergi Baka is uh, stretch four; he can shoot the ball. Now you have everybody being able to shoot the ball and put it on the deck and make plays. I think the game is going into that direction, that, that everybody on a team got to be able to do multiple things. I think that the uh, game is slowly disappearing, like you're going to be like just defensive guy and knock down corner threes. I think that game and the way I see the game, I want all the guys to be involved in decision making and playing together and making each other better. Hi, Darko. Kili Markovic, Serbian Toronto TV. Uh, I'll be switching to Serbian uh, for this part. Hopefully most of you understand me. Dobrodošljam, Darko. Prvo, presreći smo što si ti naš novi trener. Teo sam samo da pitam kakvi su ti prvi utisci Toronto i ako na kraju može samo da se javiš svim srpskim gledalcima. Hvala puno. Izuzetno sam počastvovan i srećan da budem ovde. Znam da u Torontu ima dosta Srba, koliko sam čuo nekih 50.000 i to je divna stvar jer ceo grad je internacionalni grad. Znate kako, tokom sezone dođemo u hotel, autobus, utakmica i idemo dalje. Sada je ipak tu predivno vreme koje imamo danas priliku da uživamo i predivni ljudi u ovom gradu. Sve što čujemo u gradu su fantastične stvari i zaista se radujem da budem ovde i da se družim sa našim Srbima i sa svim ljudima u gradu. We'll all be able to understand that fluently in a couple of years, Darko, honestly. Um, that concludes the, uh, let me get my, on the right page here. Thank you for everybody for coming out. This is awesome. <laughs> this is done. This is really cool. Oh, it this is. is really cool. It is. Thank it's, you, Masai and no, Coach. It is. It is. I, I think we should really, really, like, honestly, like, appreciate this moment uh, with the Toronto Raptors because um, I think we've changed eras a couple times. We've cha made changes a couple times, but... Um, uh, I'm calling on all the fans, on everybody, people in the organization, everywhere, you know, like that. This is a time to follow. This is a time to support. This is a time to go. Let's go and win. You know, like it's, let's go and do it again. We saw this thing happen last night. We've done it here before and we're going to do it again. Amen. All right, there is uh, Toronto Raptors right, president, Masai uh, Ujiri, introducing the 10th head coach in Toronto Raptors history, Darko Ryakovich, outdoors at a press conference. Uh, nice day. Luckily, uh, luckily the, uh, the rain held off. So lots to get to from that. I mean, a lot of it was kind of surface-level stuff. Yeah, he's into the culture. Yes, he wants to continue development of players. That's his number one priority. X's and O's strategy comes secondary. There was a question about defense where he talked about, hey, protecting the paint. And the second thing is limiting corner threes with Raptors have done a poor job of recently. Was not a question about the vision for this roster at a very interesting time in this team's development as far as a potential massive trade involving one of the team's stars. I, I mean, I, I guess that's one that you don't expect him to necessarily be uh, frank and forthright about. I think one of the most interesting answers I heard from that was Darko talking about his shared vision and that being a key te a tenant to his landing this job with the Toronto Raptors, which seems obvious, right? That the head coach and the front office would be aligned in their decision-making. 
And I think for the majority of Nick Nurse's career, you could, you could say that was the case. Nick Nurse was a Messiah Ujiri hire after he fired the coach of the year, Dwayne Casey. But by the end of his tenure, it did really feel like there was a bit of a disconnect, not like a, 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 a total war of power, but certainly some ideas that, if not explicitly said, implied by Masai Ujiri that, hey, yeah, it'd be interesting to, to know if uh, Malachi Flynn could actually handle, you know, the rotation spot for, for longer than he's been allowed to prove that he's capable of holding that. This is a Raptors team that had the fewest bench minutes per game in the NBA. And yeah, part of that has to be roster construction. There's nobody that obviously jumps off the page as somebody that needs to get into a basketball game on the bench here. But you know what? We really didn't have a, a big sample. And at times, it did feel like some of those players could have filled a, a, a bigger role than they were allowed to under Nick Nurse. So maybe that's going to be you know, one of the major differences between the end of Nick Nurse's tenure and the beginning of Darko Royakovich's is that he gets final say, and it's his job on the line if the Raptors do not perform. Masai Ujiri is president until he decides he doesn't want to be president anymore. Darko Royakovich is obviously going to be the guy in the line of fire if, if this team underachieves, so he gets final, final say. But understanding that it's a collaborative process and, and that he's not going to go off on his own and do things that maybe don't align with the front office. Anyways, lots to get to. Um, why don't we take a break right here? And then we come back, and why don't we talk to somebody who was down there outdoors at the OVO Athletic Center. Uh, we'll talk to Eric Smith next as the Fan Drive Time Special Edition continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Dive deep into Toronto sports and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkus Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sportsnet 590 The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Darko Royakovich just introduced as the 10th head coach of the Toronto Raptors. Raptors never do anything conventionally, do they? Second ever European head coach in NBA history. First European head coach of the Toronto Raptors. Outdoor news conference, which felt more like a rally. There were balloons. There was a lot of cheering. I assume that was not from the assembled media. Uh, but yeah, it's a different looking deal. <laughs> And Darko Royakovich uh, getting a chance to introduce himself to the Toronto faithful for the first time. Let's talk to Eric Smith, play-by-play voice of the Raptors on Sportsnet 590, the fan. That was uh, that was that was different, Eric. It was. I'm still standing outside, enjoying the sun. I'm I'm standing actually behind the stage, right right under the big rusted sculpture outside Scotiabank Arena. So it was. Uh, it definitely had a different vibe to it, and uh, you know, kind of liked it. A little little summertime action outside with the fans uh, assembled around, and I know some season seat holders were uh, asked to come in and there were definitely a, a, a large portion of uh, members of the organization that were kind of gathered around as well. And they, they're handing out ice cream now, Ben, I know you're what? probably jealous about missing out on that. So 
yeah, there's 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 a couple ice cream vendors down here that are giving out some freebies. So I'm I'm missing the ice cream to talk to you. So so anyway, so it was a good time. It was a good time. All right, get Jonesy to hold uh, hold an yeah, ice cream for exactly. you. Honestly, like, come on, give me a break. All right. Uh, so what was your big takeaway here? I mean, it, we didn't get too into the weeds there. There was like a, a couple of questions where you know asked about his defense because yeah, so much of what's publicly available and and he was on a, a podcast basically talking about his offensive philosophy for over an hour. Um, but yeah, there was a there was a question about defense. There was an answer about um, uh, a unified vision. Like, what what stood out to you uh, over the thirty minutes that he spoke? You know, I think the biggest thing that stood out is the unified vision that you speak about. Um, and and he because he addressed it a couple of times. And I'm obviously paraphrasing what he said, but um, at least two, if not three or four times, where he spoke about the um, unity with himself, with the organization, but also with the players, both on and off the floor. And one of the other things, and I, you know. I, I, I don't want to listen. I'm, you've known me long enough that I'm, I'm probably guilty of being a bit too much of a pessimist sometimes and not necessarily an optimist. I know my wife would say that, but I think uh, when I heard him say about winning each day, that kind of stood out to me. It was one of those things where, I don't know, you even as a, as a husband and as a father, anybody listening, it's like we, we talk so much about, especially in sports, um, winning the game, but it's also the preparation for the game. It's the practice. It's the day. It's the off days. It's the, preparation of your body it's the off season it's the diet it's the health it's the nutrition it's everything and if you're having a coach that's coming in with that philosophy of i'm not just looking to win 82 games and we know that's not going to happen i'm looking to win every day i'm looking to be the best team the best coach the best unified front that we can be every single day and if that's something that can actually happen and that can spill over as i say onto the practice floor into the you know the 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 sort of off day prep that goes into um, taking care of your body, uh, even if it's things about that are, you know, team building activities and just the socialization of the team and the, the camaraderie of the team and that type of thing. If you've got everybody pulling in the right direction for the same cause, I think, maybe I'm saying it naively, I think that's the type of stuff and those are the kinds of intangibles that can also then spill over into a game and what actually happens between the lines. Yeah, some trust falls. That, that'll that'll get him past yeah. 50 wins. There you go. I, I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, that... It, it, that leads to my next question because he, he, he comes from a developmental background and he's right. You know, he's been a head coach before in Europe and a couple of years in the G league as well. But so much of, of what people talk about glowingly about him is his ability to develop players. And Desmond Bain, a, a great example of that guy went one pick after uh, Malachi Flynn. Uh, and uh, he seems much better than Malachi Flynn, but yeah, no, he was, he's a big part of, of his development. Um, and, and so much of, yeah, you're right. What we heard today was about team unity and, and culture and togetherness. I mean, to me, Eric, I don't know if it, if you feel the same way to me, this goes back to Masai Ujiri talking about the pieces being in place and maybe not like some, some massive move that we all anticipate, you know, maybe Pascal Siakam being on the market, some, some, some massive trade, maybe for that third overall pick from Portland. It kind of feels like they think that this plug and play change at the head coaching position might have a, a real definitive effect. And, and there's not really a uh, necessity for that secondary ancillary roster move. So I, I'm going to give you a couple of different answers to this. The, the, the short one is I agree. And I hear everything you're saying there. I think clearly this conversation is going to be um, different uh, or at the very least more uh, enlightened three weeks from now than it is right now when we get a greater sense of what this roster actually does look like and if there is or isn't a big splash or two coming. But to your overall grander point, Ben, if we go back to, I don't know, what is it now, eight months, 10 months ago, 
and, and rewind to the beginning of last season. I don't know about you, but I know I felt that coming off a year where the team had won um, you know, 45-plus games, made it into the playoffs, and yes, ultimately bowed out and got bounced by Philadelphia in round one, you felt like there was some momentum building. And was that momentum strictly just because of the rookie of the year season that Scotty Barnes had, and he was maybe better than what a lot of people thought and fit in better than what people thought in the core uh, you know, after that terrible year in Tampa was actually kind of going towards something. And what happened last year? The team kind of sputtered and then seemed to get on track and then sputtered and then just seemed to be kind of running in quicksand for a good chunk of the year and never able to really get it going. But a lot of us were still looking going, okay, but isn't the roster pretty good? Not great. Maybe not championship level, but are they not good enough to be a playoff team? Is this not a team that we would have thought would be a top five, six team? Is this not a team that we would have thought would be carrying some momentum from that playoff experience that I spoke of the previous year? And it just never came together. So to your point, if you were to stay status quo and bring in a coach that you believe is going to be better with the development of the young players that didn't necessarily develop last year or weren't given the opportunity to play as much, then in theory, a lot of what we felt going into last year could or should apply to this coming season. But, and I underscore the big but, I think there will be change. I don't know what exactly. I don't know who exactly. But reading the tea leaves, as I'm sure you have and a lot of the listeners have, it seems like status quo is not going to be the case. I don't know if it's, again, going to be a cannonball in the deep end and a huge splash or just a couple of little minor uh, ripples. But I think there will be change coming. And it's just going to be a matter of what does Ryakovich have when camp opens come late September, early October. So unified vision, we're all guessing here, right? Like we, we don't know. Sure. And, and we can all, you know, talk about what we think uh, Ryakovich's head coaching scheme is going to look like or, or how successful he will be as an NBA head coach. But we just don't know until we see it. But if we're guessing right now, we're talking about the unified vision and, and maybe something that Masai Ujiri wants that maybe he wasn't getting necessarily by, by the end of Nick Nurse's tenure. Can we, can we point to, you know, the big minutes uh, that Fred... Pascal, OG, all played all top 20 in minutes played per game and dead last in bench minutes this past season. Can they, is that one of the areas that, that you'd be looking at if, if you're, you're, you're hearing words like unified vision and, and being in lockstep with the, with the front office, that maybe this is a team that's going to at least explore some of the options they have on the bench to see. Like, we just, a lot of those guys, we don't have a big sample of, of knowing whether or not they're, they're capable of being um, a rotation piece. Yeah, I, th- I think the short answer is yes, period. Uh, the longer answer is let's look back even at the history of this organization, let alone what goes on around the league. Um, I think the better teams, more often than not, are teams that can go a little bit deeper, that have those depth pieces that don't just rely on the five starters and maybe one or two dudes coming off the bench. Think about even the championship year. And yes, I understand you had the luxury of having a Kawhi Leonard, but you also had a Danny Green. Hence, you're bringing a Fred Van Vliet off the bench. You know, you're able to intersperse, a, a, like OG Ananobi was hurt coming off an appendectomy and a whole ton of injuries that year, barely even played, wasn't really a major part or even a minor part of the championship run, even a Chris Boucher. So you think about the depth you had just four years ago, and by the way, four years ago today that the Raptors won the title, four years ago, the depth that you had, even previous incarnations of this team that either did or didn't have success in the regular season or postseason, the bench mob, you know, the young guns all of that stuff, this team, this organization has made its name in the past on having good depth and a strong second unit. And I think that's where 
you need to be to any team, even the Denver Nuggets right now. I think you need to look at saying, all right, if we're looking to repeat next year, we have to be strong eight, 10, 12 deep because you can't just rely on going heavy minutes for your main dogs every single night. And it also then speaks to the importance of when you're drafting and when you're doing your professional scouting, trying to make trades and moves, it can't always be that we're just trying to go all in on the marquee signings and trying to make a big splash with the big name free agent. It's those smaller moves saying that's a guy that can fit into our system. That's a dude that can come off the bench. That's a guy that can give us 20 minutes. That's a guy that could be a backup here or a spot starter here. Those are just as important sometimes as the cornerstone franchise guys that you're hoping are going to turn an organization around for a decade. It's, it's those minor moves and how they all come together. So uh, the Raptors didn't exactly have their pick of the litter when it came to head coaching candidates. Like, obviously, that's no offense to Darko Royakovich, but there were five openings, and, and clear, there was three that had championship aspirations, right? Head coaches enter, you know, Nick Nurse goes to Philly. He expects to win an NBA title next season. Um, does it indicate anything to you that they go? There were other uh, candidates with, with previous NBA head coaching experience that were available. Does it indicate anything to you that they go with the young guy, the guy with no previous NBA head coaching experience. It, it, it really doesn't. And, I, and I'll tell you, you, you tell me if I'm wrong here, or if you can at least see where I'm going with this. This is to me, very similar to what we went through five, six years ago with Nick nurse. Now I understand he was already in the organization as an assistant coach and he moved over a seat. But when you think about the, the, the path and the arc that nurse and then Ryakovich, and, and again, we'll see, we'll see how Darko pans out as in, in one year, let alone in three, four, five years, uh, uh, depending on how long the run is. Can he, can he put the cherry on the Sunday with a championship one day? Who knows? Your guess is as good as mine. But when you think about it, and you addressed it earlier, the overseas head coaching, the experience that he gained there, the head coaching at the G League level, the nearly decade as an assistant in the NBA, the path and the experience to this point on this path is similar to what Nurse had before he came, became a head coach. And I, again, I'm not going to sit here and say that, that, that Ryakovic will absolutely replicate it. Who knows? But I think it's not out of the realm of possibilities or, or, or it doesn't confuse me as to why the Raptors would go this way because this is kind of how they've gone in the past where they try to find that, that uncovered or that diamond in the rough or giving somebody that new opportunity, that new chance. Um, and this is a guy that, that is well-respected around the league uh, who has had interviews in the past for head coaching positions. And, and if it wasn't Toronto now, I think it could have quite easily been another NBA team in you know next year or in the very near future. Uh, so Raptors were not a great offensive team last season. Honestly, they weren't a great defensive team either. So they were 27th in field goal percentage, 28th in three-point field goal percentage, and opponents' field goal percentage, they were tied for 28th. Uh, but they were 10th in adjusted net rating. So, I, I mean, you can really point to multiple different statistical reasons why the Raptors finished 41-41 and 41 and bowed out in the first play-in game if, if you had to you know task Darko Ryakovich with one one area one aspect of this team that you would like for him to improve what would that be I'm a guy uh, and maybe it's why I'll never be a head coach <laughs> but I'm a guy that absolutely believes offense uh, can beat a good defense uh, I think at the end of the day this game is about putting the ball in the net not necessarily stopping somebody else from doing so uh, so I'm not saying ignore defense. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be a better defensive team and need to be a better defensive team. But if I was looking at this offseason and, and what I'd be looking at most, especially when you factor in questions that may or may not be swirling about, you know, like Fred Van Vliet's now an unrestricted free agent. Pascal Siakam, is he or isn't he, you know, on the trade block or whatever else? 
I think that when you think of OG Ananobi's arc and improvement, when you think clearly of Scotty Barnes, when you talk about all these young pieces and people that we're talking about, I think we need to see who is willing to, let alone able to, and how can you unlock the ability of a bunch of different players to become better scorers, better shooters, more efficient for this team, because it might be by necessity based on who may or may not be here, but it also might be necessity based on we need to be a more diverse and a, and a, um, uh, uh, a more free-flowing offense that is no, not so reliant upon just one or two guys. And I think that might be the ultimate key if you're asking me. There needs to be more creative, creativity and flow offensively. Yeah, and everything uh, indicates that Darko Royakovich is uh, not about isolation basketball. He's all about uh, passing the ball around and making a decision within a half a second of touching the ball. Uh, could be an interesting Raptors team next season. Eric, go eat your ice cream. You deserve it. Thank you. Why? thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. All right, there's Eric Smith. Play-by-play voice of the Toronto Raptors on Sportsnet 590, the fan down at Scotiabank Arena for the outdoor press conference unveiling Darko Royakovich as the 10th head coach in Toronto Raptors history. The expectation level is not, hey, let's not finish dead last next season. I think the expectation level, and again, so much of this will become more clear after the June 22nd draft and whatever trades the Raptors have to make um, before game one of the the 2023-24 season. But clearly the expectation level, not the same as three of the other four NBA head coaching vacancies. And with a guy who's getting his first kick of the can as an NBA head coach who's 44 years old, whose background in history exists mostly in development of young players, does feel like perhaps not a Raptors team that that expects, you know, this to be close to the finish line as far as regaining those championship seasons of, of 2019. All right, we'll continue our conversation about Raptors head coach Darko Royakovich with another reporter who was down at the scene today. We'll talk to Sportsnet's own Savannah Hamilton next as it's a very special edition of the Fan Drive Time. I'm Ben Ennis. This is Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Time Sports at 590 The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Darko Royakovich introduces the 10th head coach of the Toronto Raptors. We brought you the press conference live. But as is always the case, you know, the broadcast people, we get some of it, not all of it. Uh, seeing reports now, our very own Michael Grange tweeting out, uh, Raptors general manager Bobby Webster says Royakovich was not the favorite going into the search process, but exceeded expectations at each stage. Total package of attributes one out. Okay. Uh, that's uh, interesting to note because, yeah, clearly this is a guy that was available from the start of this process. Uh, and no offense to Ryakovich, but yeah, unlikely that that one of those teams in a win now, like championship now contention window, we're going to go for a, an unproven head coach like Ryakovich, despite his his long 
resume and uh, track record as an assistant and as a head coach in Europe and, and the G League. But yeah, you wondered why the process did uh, extend so long, and it really did indicate to me, and I think a lot of people, and certainly the betting lines, that Sergio Scariolo was going to be the next head coach of the Toronto Raptors because he's the guy that couldn't physically put pen to paper because he's still coaching right now in Europe. Nope, not the case. Darko Royakovic is the next head coach of the Toronto Raptors. Let's talk to uh, Savannah Hamilton, Sport, uh, Sportsnet Raptors reporter who was outdoors. Beautiful day for a press conference, wasn't it, Savannah? Thanks for doing this. Oh, it was gorgeous. And even right now, I'm enjoying some sun. So I'm a little, uh, I'll rub it in because I know you're in the studio. Yeah, that's that stinks. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> congratulations to you. So he's the second European head coach in NBA history, that they did, like I mentioned, the outdoor press conference. You don't see that every day. Masai talked about diversity, too. Um, does, does this hiring kind of play into everything that we know about this uh, this Raptors front office? And I know Michael Grange wrote about it as well, that they, they, they don't like to do the conventional thing. Yeah. No, they never like to do the conventional thing. I think that the Raptors are an organization that kind of beats to the tune of their own drum and it oftentimes creates their own identity, which is exactly what kind of won them the championship in 2019. Um, and so when you get a coach that's new, you know, there's so many coaches that were thrown around, like, hey, there was Doc Rivers, there was, you know, Budenhoser, so many names that were prominent on the coaching search market. And the Raptors, they really held out to find the best coach that would fit their style. And so, you know, with that being said, like, you know, they're not afraid to go with a new look, a new uh, type of talent, and not just regurgitate the same uh, what's familiar, I almost call it like going with the poison you know or poison you don't know, but at the same time, you don't know like what this coach is going to bring in terms of like the NBA has head coach levels. He has a lot of head coaching experience overseas. He did talk about that in the press conference. He has 17 seasons to be exact. So, you know, I'm looking forward to see what he's going to bring. Yeah, so am I. Uh, and, you know, listen, it's always great to win a championship. Uh, obviously, it goes without saying. But there's so many ancillary things that that that, that touches, right? That Masai Ujiri becomes the president for forever, it seems like. Like, he, he will leave the Raptors when he decides it's time to leave the Raptors. I don't even know how you would fire him. Like, that kind of job security, I think, is interesting in making a, a decision like this, Savannah. Because, yeah, as Bobby Webster says, like, this is not an obvious hire. It wasn't even an obvious hire for us that we went through this process and he, and he just kind of emerged as the guy that we had to hire. I mean, does that, does that speak to the benefit of, hey, Bobby Webster knows he's not going anywhere, Masai Ujiri knows he's not going anywhere, that they're not afraid to, to do the unconventional, to maybe even make a mistake? Yeah, I mean, I think that actually just speaks to both of their leadership styles. Like, you know, there's some leaders that will want to follow the industry trend, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's other leaders that want to be original and want to see if they could create something. And also just give people opportunities to grow and to learn. And, you know, I'm sure, like, Draco, he's not going to come in right away completely polished. I'm sure they expect some mistakes to be made, as any coach would make mistakes. At the same time, you know, it does talk about, like, their own confidence in themselves and what they look for. And their, and their own values. And they, the Masai Ujiri was very um, open about that in the end of season press conference. I was looking for a coach of strong character, a coach that could fit the style of play of what they're looking for. And so if none of the coaches that were kind of the bigger names on the list were, were exactly what they're looking for, they were not afraid to go outside the lines and find somebody that could potentially lead this team to, like, another championship, as Masai Ujiri talked about today. So, like, you know, it... it I think that it speaks more so to their character rather than to their job stability, in my, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and, and it is, hey, despite the fact that Darko Royakovich now apparently has his American citizenship, he's, he's a Serb, right? Again, he becomes the second European head coach in, in NBA history, and it was, you know, posed to him the the idea that the Raptors are this non-American NBA team, the only one that exists outside of the borders of the United States. Do you think that is important for this team? Hey, like, I don't, I don't know if it, like, if it does anything in free agency or whatever, but, like, just from a, perspect, uh, a perception standpoint that the Raptors are different than the other 29 NBA teams, that this is, like, the, the, the international team. And maybe that's even, like, a marketing ploy, like, that, that if you're, you're more likely, if you're just going to choose an NBA franchise in Europe to, to, to root for, that it, it's more likely to be the Raptors because they embrace this identity. I think that's always been their identity. Like, you know, it helps that you got Coach Draco, of course, here. And you can even look at, like, what Nick Nurse brought to the table when he was originally coaching the Raptors as well in terms of, like, he was coaching overseas as well. So they always have that global perspective. And I do think that you're, you're right on the, on, the, on the nail there in terms of, you know, what they look for. I think there is a global um, audience that follows the Raptors. I know personally when I was in Australia a few years ago, I heard nothing but go Raptors go when they won the 2019 championship. So there's Raptors fans globally, and I think that it does fall in line. I'd say it's on brand with what the Raptors are accustomed to. And, like, even think about the international players, like, you know, Jansen Kumpo, like, it was widely reported a couple years ago when he was up for another contract that he was considering Toronto was one of the spots that he would potentially go to. And I think that because they have a global mentality and they have so many communities, even within the city of Toronto, that reflect the globe, um, that is definitely a, a draw and a pull because even Coach Draco in the press conference, he did say that, you know, the Serbian community in Toronto has reached out to him and they're really proud of him too. So... You, you spend time around this team, a lot of time, Savannah, so, so you can speak to this. And it's so hard to talk about the, the, the new guy without, like, throwing dirt on the old guy, which nobody's going to do. Like, Nick Nurse will forever be a legend in Toronto. He was the head coach of the 2019 team. He's still the head coach of the Canadian national team. That's all well and good. And, you know, everybody has an expiration date, especially when you're the head coach of a professional sports franchise. But, like, there, there were cracks, right, like in the chemistry. And, and Musayu Jiri at multiple media conferences talked about you know, something unquantifiable and, and the, the joy that this team or the lack of joy that the, this Raptors team was playing with the times. Did you sense that? Like, what was the chemistry like for this Raptors team by the end of last season where they finished 41 and 41? Yeah, I think anytime a team's, like, not performing to expectations, and they definitely did not this past season, and that's just simply because the season before that they made it to the first round, and then this season, they're fighting for a play-in position. So along that journey to even get into the play-in position, you know, there's lots of ups and downs and, of course, lots of frustrations that come with that. And so not only was it, you know, you sense the frustration on the coaching end, you can also sense it maybe at times from the players. And, like, rightfully so, because they all, at the end of the day, just want to win. And so, you know, if something's not working and something's not clicking, that's when it's up to management to make decisions and make calls of, to see it like having a more honest lens on what is not working and at this point in time I guess like the the Raptors especially when they didn't make any significant trades that trade deadline happens in the season but they acquired uh yeah so they did give up Ken Birch for him um and some and some picks but that was ended up being a pretty good call but then also spoke to the management and their belief in the team and the system because they doubled down on the players and so that was that, that was a, a boat of confidence to the players themselves but in that process, it was a very frustrating season. Uh, you could tell that, you know, once again, like there were some wins, but then there were some tough losses and some really close ones that, you know, could have gone either way. And, you know, at some, at some point in time, you got to make a call of what has to change. 
So obviously the, the winning is the, the, the great uh, elixir. It's the great deodorant, right? It doesn't matter what's happening is uh, outside of the, the, the games that are played on the floor if you're winning. Like if, if, you, if you win 70 games, who cares? Uh, the rest of it will take care of itself and, and there can be infighting and there can be a bad message being re- relayed to the, to the media that that's irrelevant as long as you win and you win a championship. The, the rest of that's irrelevant. But there's very few teams that can do that and I don't think anybody expects this Raptors team even if they are successful, to be like some dominant team from game one to game 82 next season. I wonder, you know, being around this team as you have over the years, Savannah, like how important uh, is the job of messaging for an NBA head coach, dealing with the media, and, and how much of an adjustment for a guy who is, who's been in the NBA for a while as an assistant and has head coaching experience but not at the NBA level, how much of an adjustment do you think that will be for Darko Ryakovich? I mean, if it's anything based on how he handles today's presser, I mean, today it's all fine and jolly. I mean, it's, it looks good so far. Um, you know, what's really going to be the true test is when, you know, you're on a losing streak, when things are not going your way, when the, when the players might not be 100% on the same page as the coach at times or whatever, for whatever reason that might be, um, and then how people respond. How do you get back on the same page? How do you, like, reshift the focus? And that's kind of like the big test that we're going to have to see play out. In this, uh, this season, of course, in, in previous seasons, you know, they've managed to either figure it out or, like, you know, get frustrated in that process and then look for another solution. And so um, with, this, with this coach, I think he's going to do a really good job with adjusting to the NBA level. I have confidence in him personally just because of his 17 seasons of being a pro coach over in Europe. And if you've seen anything of the European game and the European market, it is intense. Like, the crowds are intense. The media is very... Like it, it, the crowds compared to here are like like the way that football, like soccer in this, in, the, in Europe, is more so like. So he's used to being under the hot seat, under the pressure, and I'm not, and I'm sure that's going to translate to the NBA. He's also been a coach in the uh, G League already, so he's very familiar with the systems and like just like any. And even Masai Ujiri talked about how he met Coach Draco before, um, before long before he hired him, like a, a few years ago, even. And so, you know, that being said, like, there's just a sense of familiarity. And if it comes down to the pressure of winning and the pressure of succeeding, I'm sure he's going to handle it uh, the best that he can. Uh, so the news yesterday, it was, it was just a, a matter of time, but Fred Van Vliet uh, opting out of his player option for this upcoming season, becoming an unrestricted free agent. And uh, Bobby Webster today, after the, the, the broadcast news conference, apparently in a, in a scrum talked about, hey, they knew this was coming, and he's already spoken to Fred Van Vliet. How, how involved in, in the process of, of negotiating with Fred Van Vliet do you expect the new head coach to be? Yeah, I mean, as, when you insert a new head coach, and there's a reason why they took a long time to find him, because they wanted to make sure that he was going to have that right mentality that aligns with the organization and where they are. You know, the Raptors are a young team. They have a young core. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, who, who the pieces that the Raptors – choose to work with uh, you know that falls back on the side and that falls back on Bobby but in the past you know the coaching spot for the Raptors has been uh, a place where it's almost like a collaborative effort in terms of okay what will work for you what will work for us and so I'm sure he has some piece of the pie and what happens to some extent but at the same time him also being new you know I'm sure Bobby and Messiah are probably for running that front running that a little bit a little bit more heavily but at the same time uh, you know, it's all about what pieces does, does the coach need to succeed. 
Uh, talking to Savannah Hamilton, Sportsnet Raptors reporter. So this is this is late in the game. Like the the, the draft is like uh, in five minutes. No, it's it's June twenty second. <laughs> it's like it's right around the corner. And if the Raptors are gonna uh, pull off some some massive trade, it, it's got to happen soon. But also it means that um, you got to act fast when it comes to filling out your bench with assistance. And I would imagine for a guy who's again first time NBA head coach, but but not inexperienced, but forty four, that you would want a bench that has some some experience on it. Um, what are you expecting in that regard, Savannah? If, if you're Darko Royakovich, are you, are you looking for like maybe even a former NBA head coach who's willing to take a, a seat on your bench? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a good question because like the, the bench bosses, you know, they're, the, they're your support system, especially when you want to see it as a, as a first-year head coach. You really have to have a great group of assistant coaches with you. And I wouldn't doubt if they maybe try to go with a, a, a former head coach Although at the same time, you want his style to be organic. You want it to be original. You hired him as the head coach for a reason. And you don't want too many voices in people's ears. I think that's, a, that's what comes down to at the end of the day. Um, however, you know, I think experience uh, in, any, in any position that you could ever even work in, even just in general, like, is always a, a valid and useful tool. Um, and so I think that that's going to be a very interesting decision of how they fill out uh, the rest of the, the coaching staff and um, going into, of course, uh, the, the draft, which is, like, as you said, right around the corner, um, is going to be very interesting as well. But, you know, typically uh, the Raptors, they've made great selections in the past, and I wouldn't expect anything different this year. You, you're there. You're, you're on the sidelines. You're, you're there when they're having those timeout huddles and, and who's doing the talking and how much conversation happens between the head coach and his assistants uh, in the case of Nick Nurse. I mean, how, how much collaboration takes place or how much unilateral decision-making exists with, with the head coach. How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just a breakdown, even the NBA in general, like, uh, you know, different head coaches have different styles in terms of some, some like to be a bit more involved in what offensive plays they want to run. Some coaches would like to give that assignment to a specific assistant coach that specializes in it. Um, but every single head coach usually has something that is their calling card. And for Draco, it actually is his offensive game and so he has written up offenses time and time again for a previous team he has that european experience that he could also bring here i actually asked him personally how have you seen the game grow from a global perspective from when you started to where it's at and how can you use this raptors team to push it forward and he did say like you know back when he was coaching serge Ibaka, um was like a revolutionary player and now it's almost like the mold the standard every player should kind of be able to play one through four uh, at least or like at least, or or five through two, or like just be a lot more versatile than ever before that we've seen. And you can see that with guys like Giannis and you know Joel Embiid has an outside inside game and stuff like that. So I think with this coaching style and, and what he's kind of bring is is the fact that like um, you know he wants that versatility, but I think he's also going to of course lean on his staff for what they specialize in. Some coaches specialize in player development, which also Draco also brings to the table for this as well as. He's actually helped develop Devin Booker when he was playing for the Suns. So, or sorry, coaching for the Suns as an assistant there. So he brings a mixed bag of everything. How he's going to use his coaching staff is going to be, uh, you know, to, to be determined really. But typically in any NBA sense, they will always lean on the person that has the specialty in whatever situation arises. Um, okay, before I let you go. So yeah, this 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 front office, they've done incredible things. They, they you know, it's it's always amazing to me still to have people new to the organization, step to a podium and talk about a championship organization. Yeah, the Toronto Raptors are a championship organization. They just won one back in, in 2019. So, yeah, they get the benefit of the doubt, despite the fact that there may have been some roster missteps 
uh, uh, in recent years, certainly, not, not with the drafting of Scotty Barnes fourth overall, but you know, maybe some ancillary stuff outside of that. How long does that last? Like, how long do you get the benefit of the doubt? Like, obviously, they get one here and, and this season, but at, at a certain point, that does wane. Like, wh- when does that wane, do you think? In terms of just like a coaching longevity? No, I just mean the front office. Masai Ujiri, Bobby Webster, the, the guys yep. that put together a championship team, we, we all, you know, I think most people give them the benefit of the doubt that they that whatever they do is the correct move, although they've had uh-huh. some, some missteps recently. Like, how long does that goodwill last? Um, well, I think it, it, it lasts as long as Larry Tannenbaum, the guy that's signing the checks, wanted to last, really. Um, yeah. I think it comes down to... Like, we all know that there's ebbs and flows in winning. There's going to be some seasons where it is going to feel like a step back. And, you know, like, I think Giannis Antetokounmpo put it brilliantly when they were playing in the playoffs this past year and they got knocked out way earlier than they expected to be. And he said, part of winning is actually losing. And it's not really an excuse, but at the same time, it's, it's true. There's only one winner at the end of every season. And it's hard to be that one winner and every season. But if you're making a small step, growing and also evaluating where you are currently at. So with this Raptors team in particular, they're so young and it's hard to put the pressures of a championship or even, you know, making it to the Eastern conference finals when they just don't have a lot of that experience of even getting there and what, knowing what it potentially even takes to like regulate your body throughout the, the regular season. So that you have enough left in the tank for that playoffs as well. So there's like a lot of uh, evaluation that you have to consider before you just blame it strictly on one um, you know, whether it's management, whether it's coaching, whether it's the players themselves, there's lots of factors that have to be evaluated. And I think, hey, like Larry Tannenbaum, that's that's all his court, and I don't get paid enough to <laughs> to, to make that decision. <laughs> uh, no, me neither. Uh, Savannah, <laughs> thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. All right, thank you. Take care. You too, Savannah Hamilton, Sportsnet Raptors reporter. Again, they still get the benefit of the doubt. It wasn't an abject disaster last season, although at times it did feel like it. 41-41. Made the play-in tournament. They lost the Chicago Bulls, who had a second-half lead against a team that eventually went to the NBA Finals. Bulls were leading the Heat in the fourth quarter, I believe, of that, that second play-in tournament game. Um, the Raptors missed all the free throws in the world to, to lose that game. Otherwise, beating the Bulls, and maybe they're beating the Heat. Maybe the Raptors, in an alternate sliding doors reality, are in the NBA Finals against Nikola Jokic and the Denver Nuggets. Probably not, though, because that Raptors team is not very good. It just wasn't, right? Like, we all watched it. But here's the the, the latest. Again, we, we can be proven wrong here in the coming days because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be coming just days until we see some definitive action as far as maybe trading into a, one of the, the top five draft positions or a massive swing that, that trades away um, a Pascal Siakam or an OG Ananobi or uh, deciding to uh, sign and trade one of the pending free agents, Fred Van Vliet, Gary Trent Jr. Obviously, Jakob Pertl is a guy that they're going to retain. You don't give up a first-round pick to to walk watch a guy walk away. But it seems like the gamble that Masai Ujiri and Bobby Webster have made, again, I'm just reading the tea leaves here and I'm looking at the the hiring and listening to the messaging and also looking at the landscape of the Eastern Conference, which... Maybe this is a weird one-off year where a team like the the Miami Heat can be an eight seed and run right through it. And maybe uh, the Bucs are back onto their, like, dynastic path with a, a new head coach. But maybe it's also wide open. But it seems like the, the bet, the gamble is this roster, 
Well, it needs some tweaking, certainly at the, the back half of it, because the depth, like, is non-existent. Unless, yeah, that was a Nick Nurse problem, that he just didn't play it enough, that those guys are actually talented, but just didn't get an opportunity, which maybe there's something to that, but I don't think that's that's everything. The gamble seems to be that this roster is good enough. That maybe not good enough to win a championship, but good enough to get back on track to where they were a couple of seasons ago, where they looked like they were going to be the first team in NBA history to come back from a 3-0 series deficit to the... Uh, Philadelphia 76ers, when Scotty Barnes came back from that injury, it didn't end up happening. But that that was not a total mirage, despite the fact that, like, the second half of the 2022 season was basically nothing but skeleton crews coming into Toronto to play the Raptors because of COVID protocols. That's the gamble, seemingly. Again, it could be proven wrong. This this whole roster could be t- torn down, and, and everything that, like, everything I just said could become irrelevant in the coming days. It doesn't feel like that, though really does feel like, for the most part, the core of this Raptors team is coming back, despite, although some rumors indicating that uh, Fred Van Vliet and Gary Trent Jr. might be headed elsewhere this coming offseason. All right, when we come back, we'll we'll talk to Michael Grange before the end of the hour, who was in that Bobby Webster media availability, or maybe it was a one-on-one, so we'll get some some details from there. We'll also check in on Denver, see if it's uh, still standing right now after the Nuggets win their first ever championship in franchise history. We'll talk to Eric Goodman, a Denver morning show host on milehighsports.com. As the Fan Drive Time Special Edition continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Unrivaled insight, analysis, and opinions on all things Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Edition of the Fan Drive Time. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590. The Fan. Nikola Jokic was not the NBA's MVP this season during the regular season. Could have been all the very rare three consecutive seasons NBA MVP, probably in retrospect, and deserving of that acclaim. I think he'll take Finals MVP though. That'll be fine. Uh, first ever title for him as the Nuggets go 16 and four. In the playoffs, one of the most dominating postseason runs in NBA history. First championship in franchise history. Let's talk to Eric Goodman, Denver Morning Show host on MileHighSports.com. Eric, uh, what's the feeling in Denver today, the day after? It's pretty good. I mean, it's the first championship ever for this franchise. I think Denver's been, you know, fortunately a little spoiled. This is the third title. Uh, in Denver over the last seven years. The Broncos won the Super Bowl in the 15-16 season. Then last year, as all of your hockey fans know, the Avalanche had quite a run to a Stanley Cup. And now, you know, less than a year later, the Nuggets have won the championship. And, you know, this is really a great time because it's the first championship. I would say the most important championship in Broncos history is when the Broncos won their first Super Bowl after so many disappointing Super Bowl losses. Uh, After that, I put the Nuggets up there. It's not a knock on the Avalanche. Uh, And the reason why I say that is when the Avalanche won their first Stanley Cup title, they were new to this city. I'm guessing a lot of people weren't overly versed in hockey. Mm -hmm. They come from Quebec. They have Joe Sackick. They have Forsberg, brand new team. People are learning what icing is. And bang, they win a championship. 
And while it was certainly appreciated, and that team was fantastic, the Nuggets have been around for a much longer time than the Avalanche had been. Uh, Stan Kroenke has uh, many billions of dollars, uh, and, and now he has a Super Bowl, a Stanley Cup, and now a Larry O'Brien trophy in a 16th month yeah. span. That's, that's pretty good. Um, he doesn't know where a microphone is, yeah, because he was, he was trying to search for it uh, when, when he, was, he was speaking uh, after, uh, after the, the Nuggets pulled off the victory in Game 5 yesterday. But, like, is there any secret sauce to what he's doing? Is it just, like, invested in the right product? Like, is there, is there something that, that ownership has done here to have that kind of sustained success over a year period? Well, it's interesting how he has treated his three major sports teams. Now, granted, he owns Arsenal as well. He owns the Colorado Mammoth. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is a lacrosse team. They just won a championship as well. It's interesting when you look at the philosophy. When the Rams won a championship, Les Snead, their general manager, his famous line was, F them picks, Mm -hmm. meaning we're going to give up all of our draft picks to bring in a Von Miller to bring in a Matthew Stafford. Now, when you look at the Avalanche and the Nuggets, both teams were built through the draft, and they were patient with their head coaches. Jared Bednar, when they brought in Jared Bednar, people thought, who the hell is Jared Bednar, right? And they were patient with him, and they had high picks like McKinnon and McCarr and Matthew Duchesne, and Matt brought in a haul of picks as well, Gabriel Landeskog. He was a top three pick, but they remained patient with the abs. Same thing, really, with the Nuggets. Uh, Jamal Murray, and oh, by the way, thank you, Toronto, and thank you, Masai Ujiri, who is a brilliant basketball mind. It is Masai Ujiri who traded Carmelo Anthony to the Knicks that eventually wound up being a seventh overall pick that turned into your very own Jamal Murray. So Masai Ujiri has had a lot to do you can make the case with this Nuggets run. And then they brought in Tim Conley, who drafted Nikola Jokic and Michael Porter Jr. So this really was a team effort over the course of the last eight years or so when they hired Michael Malone. They stayed patient with Michael Malone. They stayed patient with their draft picks. Unlike the Rams, it was get the best free agents out there, make as many trades as you need to to get us a Super Bowl right away. The Avs and the Nuggets are all homegrown, and that's why I think people nationally look at the Avs and the Nuggets as potential dynasties because they have a lot of their core and great core under contract yeah. instead of chasing free agents. Yeah, it certainly helps to, to nail the 30, uh, 41st overall selection and, you know, you grab a generational right. superstar like that, that yeah, right, d- right. during a Taco Bell commercial. Um, so, yeah, you right. mentioned that the, the Broncos run run everything in Denver and, and John Elway, I assume, is at the very tippy top of, of the mountain when it comes to sporting stars in that city. Yep. What, where is Jokic now? Two consecutive MVPs and then a finals MVP. Well, I mean, if you're talking about the Mount Rushmore, John Elway will always be the most important person in Denver sports history because you can really make the case he put Denver on the map. The Broncos became relevant because of John Elway going to all those Super Bowls. Losses in the 1980s, mind you, but he really put them on the map. Then he stayed in town, opened a bunch of car dealerships, started to run the Colorado Crush, which was a an arena league team. Then he became the GM and the head of football operations. So he has won as a player and he has won as an executive. You can make the case that Joe Sackick is a close second only because he won as a captain of the avalanche 
And now he is the president of the Colorado Avalanche, and they have just won a cup. But as far as players go, I don't know of a player in Denver sports history, maybe outside of Terrell Davis, that has had a better three-year run than Nikola Jokic. For as great as Elway was, he was never the best player in football three years in a row. Mm -hmm. Joe Sackick was never the best hockey player three years in a row. Nikola Jokic has been, and he should have won the MVP. And the reason why he didn't is something that you brought up. I don't think that voters wanted to put Jokic in the category, which is very elite, of winning the MVP three years in a row. I think it was as much of a protest vote. Oh, Toronto Watch, ESPN, Kendrick Perkins makes it all about race. And, I mean, it kind of spoiled the entire pot of gumbo. It's funny because when you look at how the national media views the Nuggets and how the local media views the Nuggets, and I'm being more specific to Nikola Jokic. Locally, we look at Jokic and this title as a coronation of what he has done over the last three years. Nationally, people look at it as, ooh, this team is just getting started, and now Jokic had his breakout party on national TV. I'm sorry, he's always been there. You just weren't watching Mm-hmm. No, but we do do that in, in all of our sports, but specifically the NBA, where you you don't get to, and uh, Charles Barkley, it's, I'm sorry, but yeah, you don't get to, you don't get to be mentioned in the uh, same breath as the elite of the elite, unless you at least have one championship ring, and we were doing it with Giannis, but but now that he has one, uh, and, and the two uh, MVPs, in previous seasons. I mean, it's, it's pretty hard to deny Eric and I, I, Hey, maybe the box will be right back there next year with the new head coach, but, and, and the box did have a better regular season record than the nuggets this season, but it's hard to deny now that like almost like Denver is obviously that the center of the basketball universe after winning a title, but like employs the best basketball player in the NBA right now. And maybe a guy that when we, when it's all said and done, who's not quite 30 years old, like might be what a top five player in the history of the sport. Um, I don't know about top five, but certainly top ten. Jokic doesn't get a lot of recognition for this reason. And I'll ask you, are you a meat eater? Do you like a good cut of meat? Yeah, you. Yeah, I sure do. Okay. Pick your favorite, Ben. Pick your favorite cut of meat. Uh, filet mignon. Okay. That's what I would pick as well. So picture this. You're sitting in a really nice restaurant. Beautiful white plate. You like? Please tell me you like it medium rare. I'm hanging Obviously, up. obviously. Yes. Okay, yeah. good smart man. So you have a white plate and all you have is a 10 ounce filet mignon sitting on your plate. It's the best cut of meat out there. And you're getting ready to put your knife and fork in it. And a waiter brings by a platter of sizzling fajitas, which happens to be skirt steak. That's a decent cut of meat, but it's not great. Skirt steak is Giannis. Skirt steak is Steph Curry. And back in the day with Steph Curry, he was the best, arguably the best player in basketball, maybe outside of LeBron James. The problem with the national media is they are so enamored with the sizzle, they forget about the steak. So their eyes look at the sizzle and take in the aroma and the sound of the sizzle instead of looking at what's in front of them, which is Nikola Jokic the best cut of meat in the NBA. Mm. Sometimes people get so enamored with the sizzle, they forget about the steak. 
because he's not a sports center guy. He's not a guy who's going to make your highlight film all the time. He will make the pretty passes, but he's not hitting 35-foot three-pointers. He's not dunking the basketball very often. It's hard to measure IQ when you watch a highlight. That's what he is. Mm -hmm. So I think that the national media here in the United States didn't notice Nikola Jokic because he wasn't on the highlights all the time, and he didn't have that sizzle like a Kevin Durant. But now people realize, hey, maybe the filet is better than those fajitas. I'm starving. My God. Yeah. No, I I, I hear you. Um, And, yeah, he's not – it doesn't appear about to go – into the, the the sizzle mode anytime soon. He just talked about he gets to go home now, and yeah, we know he wants to go home and ride his horses. Um, but yeah, Damon, right. Damon, is he uh, effective? I want to talk about the the guy you mentioned earlier, uh, the seventh overall selection and and a, a draft pick acquired through the trading of Carmelo Anthony, uh, Kitchener's own Jamal Murray, just uh, an hour or so outside of the city of Toronto. He looks so good. Like his breakout was during the bubble, right? When when they end up getting the conference finals, losing to the eventual champion Lakers. Uh, him and Donovan Mitchell had gone head to head seemingly every game during that series against the Jazz. And then the horrific knee injury. Um, was there ever like where was the level of 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 belief that he could get back to the guy that we saw in the bubble, considering how extensive that injury was? Well, I will tell you this. I'm going to start off by saying this. And I'm going to be disappointing all of your Toronto audience. I was sitting in the press conference, and I think this was before the NBA Finals. And I'm like, really, Jamal, did you just say that publicly? He was asked about watching the Lakers, um, or he was asked about watching the Heat, and he said, I watched the hockey game instead. (laughs) And he said, and we said, which game was it? And he goes, well, it was the green team against the orange team. And I'm thinking, really, Jamal, did you just say that? You grew up in the Toronto area, and you don't know who the Dallas Stars are? Come on, dude. you gotta rep, You got to rep your hometown a little bit better than that. Please tell me you know hockey better than that. But I digress. Jamal Murray is a player, generally speaking, has been, I don't want to say an up-and-down player. He's been more up than down. But he'll have a 30-point game, and then he'll have a 12-point game. Great players are consistent every night. The secret sauce for Jamal Murray is is that when the playoffs come around, he tends to be even far more consistent. But the game that really made me feel, wow, this guy really gets it now, was game four in which his shots were off. I think he was like five for 17. But he realized as a point guard, I can do other things to affect a win. He went four straight games with 10 or more assists. You look at Steph Curry, he's listed as a point guard, but he's a shooting guard, playing point guard. And Jamal Murray is really the same way. His challenge was always consistency. But when his shot is on, he is unbelievable. And remember, he has never been to an all-star game. And to make this even more impressive with what Jokic has done, if you go back the last 40 years, there has not been a player in the NBA that has won a title without an all-star on his roster that has played significant minutes. The only guy who has ever made an all-star team on the Nuggets roster currently is DeAndre Jordan, and he was barely a player in the playoffs this year. That's how impressive the feat from 
Nikola Jokic was. Mm -hmm. But as for Jamal Murray, an unbelievable tandem. I mean, now as a tandem, you look at what Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal did, what Jordan and Pippen did. What they did as a tandem was nothing short of remarkable. They're very, very close on and off the court. They make each other better. And for Jamal Murray, he has been nothing short of instrumental. And when people say, well, man, how come Jokic couldn't win over the last two years? Well, dummy, for the person who doesn't follow the Nuggets, Jamal didn't play in the last two playoff series. And Michael Porter Jr. didn't play in a playoff series. And the one that he did play in, he was injured. The entire Nuggets run, or the belief began, late March of 2021, when they traded for Aaron Gordon. And they ripped off seven straight wins. And everybody believed, oh, my God, he is the missing piece. And now they're going to win a title potentially in 2021. And then Jamal rips his knee, ironically, on the anniversary of when the Titanic sunk. And that sunk the next two seasons for them. Finally, they had a healthy team. And they whipped their way through the playoffs. 16-4. and They really weren't challenged. After they were tied at two against Phoenix, they went 10-1 and the rest of the way. Yeah, it was uh, about as dominating a postseason performance as we've seen in recent uh, memory. Eric, yeah. uh, congratulations to the city of Denver. Thanks so much for doing this. Well, listen, take care of Ryan O'Reilly. Yeah. He's awesome. Yeah, we'll, I mean, we'll see if he's returning. He, well, he wanted his way out of Denver, I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. But Ryan O'Reilly, man, that guy is a player. I love him. Yeah. And hopefully... Toronto doesn't have to wait as long as the Nuggets did. Yeah, uh, right? yeah, well, yeah fingers crossed. Uh, see you, Eric. <laughs> see you, man. Thanks for your time. There's Eric Goodman, uh, Denver Morning Show host on MileHighSports.com. Michael Grange patiently waiting uh, down at the unveiling of the new Raptors head coach. Uh, he joins us uh, right now. How's it going, Michael? It's good. I got a little sunburn, though. I, uh, I know. That's, yeah. I, my, my first outdoor I, ceremony and... Very sunny, high noon or high one o'clock. I got the bald spot. I was not prepared. <laughs> I hope I, I'm okay. No, yeah, fingers crossed for you. No, I was going to ask you about that. Like, I, I can't remember. I, I've been in this industry a while, not as long as you, uh, not to age ourselves. But, yeah, I've, I've never seen the outdoor press conferences. Darko Ryakovich gets a, a beautiful, sunny June day, which is no guarantee, and it's apparently going to rain later. And then afterwards, yeah, the, the, the Bobby Webster uh, quotes are starting to, to filter out. I, I was interested in the process because it felt so much like Sergio Scariolo with the, the playoffs continuing in Europe. He was the guy, and it was just you know a matter of waiting until his postseason run was over to officially ink him. But like yeah, the indication I get from reading the quotes from Bobby is that, no, it's just Darko was never the favorite and, and just at every step of the way impressed. Yeah, that was really uh, very surprising. I asked uh, Messiah and Bobby that. Um, in kind of different iterations because oh, these guys have extensive ties, as you might expect, both being in the league for a long time, the whole organization. And, and I just sort of assumed, I was waiting for some kind of anecdote or story where they got to know each other in the bubble and, and uh, you, know, they, you know, there was a kind of a seed planted or something like that. And, and really, Masai Jury, the first time he met, uh, you know, his new head coach was on a Zoom call, <laughs> you know, so... Um, and I think he was in the category of this guy's really interesting. We've heard a lot of really good things. He's been with some good organizations. 
let's you know let's sound him out and 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 at the very least you know he's on our radar and and you never know like there's always you you want to have these relationships but no he uh and so he kind of came from came from the outside like you know the in horse racing terms like he was not uh pole position by any stretch and uh yeah just i think there were three interviews and then and i, I think uh two in person and um, and he just kind of won them over, and I think he really represents an interesting combination of you know the the Serbian coaching tradition is not to be trifled with. I don't think in any coach, any sport, um, there is a real science and craft to that uh, profession, and they, it's a profession there. Like you don't become a gym teacher and work your way up. And uh, next thing you know, you're a coach. No disrespect to, you know, most coaches that we've ever known or met. Um, it's it's a, you take it at a, at a post secondary level. You you really apply. You study with master coaches. Like it's a it's a real thing. So so that's that's certainly part of uh, Darko's background. And then also um, he just made a very conscious decision to to pursue, you know, basketball in the United States and what it looked like and what it could look like. And I think he did it in a way that, that, you know, I think his ability to um, and willingness to relate to younger, uh, younger generation of player. And, uh, and I think that combination of really exacting uh, standards with, um, you know, a real sensitivity and appreciation for, you know, a younger generation of player is, is sort of what, you know, a couple of things that I think stood out for them and, uh, yeah, well, I mean, there's there's all kinds of questions I'm sure you have, but, but mm-hmm. those are a couple of things that jumped out, out to me. Yeah, well, when I first saw the the hiring and did a little bit of research on, on Darko Ryakovich, and you, you look at the player development background and Desmond Bain of it all, it really it indicated to me, like, yeah, that I thought that this hiring was made because the Raptors had some roster moves upcoming that were going to make it a little bit younger. Maybe they were going to, you know... Yeah, trade into the the top five of the, of the upcoming draft, and this was a, a longer term plan. But knowing now what Bobby Webster said that this guy was not the the lead dog out of the gate, like is the, is it wrong to infer anything about you know him being forty four years old about him being a, a developmental guy? Not only is it not wrong, Ben, it's absolutely correct, ah. and and I think um, you know I think. One of the things they were looking for was somebody that could coach this team regardless of the iteration. So, you know, I, I don't think that there's a big momentum that they're going to tear things down and, and rebuild. But, you know, if at some point that's the direction things are get dictated, you know, I think they'll be very comfortable with, uh, you know, with their choice and kind of managing that type of opportunity. Um this is also a coach who's worked on staffs that have gone to the Western Conference Finals when he was in OKC. Obviously, last year, the last couple of years in Memphis, that teams that were, you know, trending on the cusp of aiming at titles. So I think that there's a comfort level if, you know, they just say, listen, I think, you know, we look at what we were with once we added Jakob Pertle, and if we tweak here and there, I th- you know, we think we can be a top four team, and we're going to, you know, we need a coach who can, who can do that. And so I think that that's, you know, really, you know, something that, that was in their mind, somebody who could, who could be a good choice 
regardless of the direction uh, they end up going uh, with the roster. That's that's super interesting. Um, yeah, that. I, what do you? And I know you've you've uh, well, you've obviously talked to more people about Darko, and and you've done plenty of research on his background, and and listened to all the podcasts, and understanding his philosophy. And we got a little bit of a an answer about the defensive philosophy. But what what do you think, like tactically? What is the difference that we're going to see on the court for this Raptors team? Of course, so much of it comes down to, to roster and what they do in the coming days. But what are you expecting to see as as far as a departure from Raptors teams of years past? I think the ball is going to move more. And it's going to be a lot more about using a volume of passes and cut it, cut it and cuts to create opportunities, regardless of who ends up with the opportunity. And it's... Um, you know, I think it's if you look kind of come through his numbers, not, not that they're his, right? Like, I mean, but he was hired by assistant coaches who seemed to value, or by head coaches who seemed to value his uh, insights and his values, and he in turn valued theirs. <clears throat> There's, you know, like the teams tend to, as the longer he's around, they tend to move the ball more. There's more cuts, there's more baskets off cuts, there's more passes. <clears throat> and I think that's, you know, what you can expect. Um, but um, how you do that and ideally leverage all of that on a roster that's, you know, shy on shooting, as we all know, and doesn't really collapse the paint all that well, I think it's going to be, that's where the magic's going to be. Yeah, that would be yeah. amazing if he had the magic to turn this this Raptors team into uh, a good offense, because they were quite bad uh, in, in shooting percentage and certainly three-point percentage. So also, uh, Bobby Webster talked about the Fred Van Vliet opting out of his uh, player option, which we all expected, but now, um, not, I guess, te- technically official, but yeah, it's, everybody understands that's about to happen. The deciding date for Gary Trent Jr. is later on this month. Um did you get any indication as to the, the, the plan with, with Fred Van Vliet, how productive conversations have gone with him as he reaches unrestricted free agency? No, not, not at that level at this point. I mean, um, <clears throat> you know, I think Bobby did say he talked to Fred yesterday, you know, like communication lines are open. Um, and you know that, right? Like, I mean, there's zero chance that Fred Van Vliet is going to cut off his nose to spite his face, Yeah, you know, with the team that, you know, I think he has, really does have an affinity with and and can, by the way, offer him five years. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, I think, you know, I think I think uh, his agent has done a really good job in, in letting the whole world know on the brightest possible stage <laughs> being the deciding game of the NBA Finals that uh, he is a free agent. You know, like, don't, don't, don't let that detail slide by, right? Like, you know, he could have announced it. Tomorrow, but no, they, uh, they announced it uh, at the NBA Finals. So, um, you know, so I think you know right away you start looking around. Okay, who who has cap space? Which team could be a fit? Where where are the signing trade possibilities? And that all just helps Fred Bentley. Um It kind of lets people know that you know there could be competition. Does that mean he gets an extra year? Does that mean he gets an extra you know ten percent money? I don't know, but uh, that's why you hire an agent to try and, you know, create the impression that um, there's a lot of demand for what he can offer. And, and I think there is a reasonable expectation that would be a demand for what Fred can offer. But I think, uh, you know, that I don't see any scenario where the Raptors aren't firmly in the mix. How, how does the, the hiring of, of Darko Ryakovich impact uh, free agent decisions or like, you know, that he's now 
uh, the head of the snake here, and and he can, I guess, impart his vision for this team going forward is is part of it. I mean, it's probably mostly coming down to dollars and cents, but is he a factor in these discussions? Well, I think he will be, and he'll have input in the draft. And, um, you know, one interesting thing, you know, I'll be curious to see is if, you know, the Raptors are a little bit more uh, open or aggressive or, you know, looking a little harder at Europe. And does in turn, uh, Rajkovic, his ties make him maybe a, a little more, make the Raptors a little bit more interesting to a potential European free agent. Um, you know, Toronto's done that before at times when they've needed to find players. And, um, you know, I'm not reporting that, but I, I think that there there is a little bit of, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit of additional um, let's look over there. Maybe there's something there that we're overlooked that we should be aware of, and so that could be a possibility. Um, you know, but I think I think the primary, you know, the best thing you want to do as a team is keep the good players you have, and if you don't keep them, you want you know you don't want them to lose them for for nothing. And I think as we've discussed many times, the Raptors are at a point where <clears throat> Fred VanVleet leaves, and it's you know, and it's not a sign and trade, or you know, a lot of times the return on a sign and trade is. It's almost like a, you know, it's kind of a, an excuse me. Um, <clears throat> that would be not good, right? Like, you're, that's a really good player. You're not getting full return on. And even Gary Trent Jr., who's, you know, he he's, you know, you don't want these guys moving on for nothing. And the best way to make your team better is to keep the good players you have and add. Mm-hmm. And so I would think that would be the Raptors' first choice. Now, did they get to get over the finish line with that? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to suggest that the Raptors uh, ask Darko who the next Jokic is going to be, but they don't have their second-round pick. I mean, the, the 44th overall selection is with San Antonio, so, I mean, they, they can't draft uh, the next Jokic during a Taco Bell commercial anyways. So they have to take him at 13, I guess? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think if you uh, if you felt that good about it, you might want to take him at 13. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. or, maybe, or maybe buy a second-round pick. You know, do something. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. You know, that worked out. incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Michael, uh, great work as always. Uh, enjoying uh, all your, your latest on the, on the website. Thanks for doing this. All right, Ben. You have a good day. Good day. Take yeah. care. Yeah, you too. Michael Grange, Sportsnet's own, down at the official un- unveiling of Darko Ryakovich as the 10th head coach in Toronto Raptors franchise history. So this is a, a special edition of the fan drive time. We did it because Darko Ryakovich is doing a media availability at 1 o'clock. There's a special edition of of the the Raptors show coming your way at four o'clock, but we got another hour of the fan drive time. We'll uh, get into the Stanley Cup finals. The Vegas Golden Knights have a chance to follow the Denver Nuggets into immortality tonight with a victory in game five over the Florida Panthers. Frank Cervelli, director of hockey content for dailyfaceoff.com joins me next. It's fan drive time. I'm Ben Ennis. This is Sportsnet 590, the fan. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Time 
Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. I know it was uh, very offensive to many of uh, your sensibilities that Stan Kroenke was the first person to hoist the Larry O'Brien trophy yesterday. That's all they do it in the NBA. And he, this guy pays the bills, I suppose. He's been pretty good at, at helming uh, some championship teams over the last 16 months. No worries, though, if the Vegas Golden Knights win tonight. Mark Stone will be the first person to hoist Lord Stanley's mug. Let's talk to Frank Saravelli, Director of Hockey Content for DailyFaceOff.com. Happy, potentially, Stanley Cup Eve. Why are you happy? That could mean no hockey until I know, October. I know. Okay. I'm sad. All right, so we're rooting for the Panthers then tonight? I have a funny feeling about the Panthers tonight. Yeah. I, I know they're banged up. It kind of feels like they're playing with one arm tied behind their back, but whenever that happens, you know, the attention to detail just suddenly seems to ratchet up. Uh, I'm with you, and I would say there was an indicator um, in game four, by which I mean, well, one, Vegas didn't score a power play goal, uh, but they only had one opportunity, Frank. To me, that's all what's going on here. And, of course, it's also like every time you count the Panthers out and you say that they have no chance, they have no business of being here, and it started from game one against the Boston Bruins, they surprise you. But to me, if we're actually looking for something tangible, it's that nah, maybe the whistle's uh, getting thrown away. Well, that's that was the crazy change. Game two, 148 penalty minutes. Game four, four. You're like, <laughs> yeah. these two teams suddenly didn't wake up you know, on Saturday night and decide that they were going to play nice with each other. Like that didn't happen. The game was just called in a totally different way. Mm -hmm. And I'm with you. I think if that trend continues in game five, what you're dealing with is a team that's gotten slaughtered on both special teams Mm -hmm. over 13 on their own power play and just 12 for, sorry, over 13 on their own power play and 12 for 18 Mm on the penalty kill, uh, sources say not good. No, <laughs> Yeah, six power play goals allowed over the first three games. That's, that's no way to go through life. But you mentioned they're no. banged up. And, like, you know, the guy that's on People Magazine is the guy that's banged up. He barely played in the third period of game four, Matthew Kachuk. Um, it seems, I mean, I guess this is obvious to say, but you get the extra day off. But, I mean, if he's not 100%, um, feels like not good. He's not 100%. There's no question. I think there's a big question as to whether or not he even plays tonight. Really? You know, I my my hunch would say that he is because he's the gamer of all gamers. But there was just one sequence to end the game where that scrum was ensuing at the buzzer mm-hmm. that he was kind of it just like it, it felt like a guy to me that was like bleep it, I'm not playing next game anyway, I'm in. <laughs> So I don't know what to take from that. Maybe nothing. Just one of those things that I noticed out of the corner of my eye. Oh my goodness! I would I would think that he'd he'd be. How do you keep him out of the lineup? I know, I know it's probably some because devastating he has injury. One, he's playing with one arm. Yeah, yeah, but like even so, you just tape the stick to that one arm. Like I I just can't imagine if it's his call at all that he wouldn't demand to play in in potentially the last hockey game of the year. I, I'm with you, which is why I tend to think that he's playing. But I also think it's incredibly interesting that Grigory Denisenko and Giovanni Smith mm. practiced as hard as they reportedly did on Monday. Yeah, those guys haven't played in the playoffs to this point. Yeah, we uh, we shall see. But no, yeah, uh, listen, I, I I don't think it's going to be straightforward. Hey, even Game Four wasn't straightforward, despite being up three nothing, right? Like this 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 Panthers team. 
I, I know, you know, it, it's it's 3-1, and, and there's been times where they've been dominated. We mentioned all the power play goals, but, like, I would say in an overall sense, 5-on-5, five five, it, hasn't, it hasn't been a bulldozing. There's been a lot of ugly no. hockey at 5-on-5 five five during this series, and Sergei Bobrovsky kind of looks back to normal. I, I Yeah, I am loathe to say that this is fait accompli. I don't. I, I do think the Golden Knights are going to win the cup. It's just mm-hmm. a question of when. Yeah, that's where I'm at. I, I just uh, there. Here's the thing, too. Like funny things happen when the Stanley Cup is in the building and getting yes. polished. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of like that guy on the the 18th green at your your local golf club that's absolutely quivering with his putter on the the last hole. Yeah, that's me. Like he he may have had a four shot lead coming in, but. <laughs> oh man, his knees are knocking right at the finish line as he's trying to close it out. Yeah, and I don't know if you were watching the basketball game yesterday uh, and the Nuggets eventually pulled it off, but yeah, there were moments in that game where you're like, oh, and they're missing a bunch of free throws. Like, yeah, it's 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 one thing to to get yourself to the precipice. It's, it's quite another to step over it. And I know, okay, so Vegas has had... Uh, a couple of, of six-game series victories in a row after the, the five-gamer over uh, the Winnipeg Jets, a Jets team that was imploding uh, before our, our very eyes. Um, but man, the, the way they dismantled that Oilers team, which looked so good down the stretch of that regular season, team, uh, regular season, and then Dallas with Jake Ottinger, I know like from a numerical perspective and the amount of games that they've lost, it, it, it wouldn't be this, but it does feel like this was a, a pretty dominating stretch, especially if they win in five games tonight. Like this might be one of the most impressive Stanley Cup runs in recent memory. It's just about as clean of a run as you could have. Like there were never really any hiccups. There was never really a moment where it felt like they were out of control or in trouble Maybe it was the first game of the playoffs themselves mm-hmm. losing to the Jets like they did. And then after that, it was like, holy smokes, this team is a machine. And it's kind of amazing to think about when you consider that one year ago, like I, I said this the other day, Jack Eichel was on a boat in Hawaii. <laughs> My buddy crazy. tweeted out a photo of him and Jack Eichel. <laughs> like, Your buddy was with Jack Eichel on this boat in Hawaii? Yes. Wow, you got some 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 buddies in the know there, I guess. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, like that honestly makes me a little bit nervous. Um, depending on. So they I, didn't make the playoffs. Yeah. <laughs> and and they barely changed their team. Mm-hmm. They changed their coach, and I think, you know, coaches can't win a con Smythe, but like Bruce Cassidy would be pretty high up on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, it to think about where this team was, and then all year everyone's counted them out right from the beginning. Some people didn't pick them to make the playoffs again. Yeah. We were this time last year we were talking about is is there po- the potential for their GM to be fired because their owner sources said had conducted a long lengthy review saying, well, I don't know if this guy's the right guy." Yeah, and, and you mentioned Bruce Cassidy, which maybe is a, a good um entree into our next topic of conversation. Peter Laviolette going to be the next head coach of the New York Rangers. And uh, he's a retread. I mean, this guy's has been a successful head coach in the National Hockey League. And there's some sentiment, I mean, both among Rangers fans and some people who are just, you know, NHL observers at large that, like, this is part of the NHL's problem, that they there's not enough outside-the-box thinking, that there's not a lot of new hires. But, yeah, okay, what do you make of it? Like, for what? Why? Like, why do people do this? Mm-hmm. Why do people try to twist themselves into pretzels to denounce everything just to put a stake in the ground and try and make some claim about something that they don't know anything about. I've seen the discourse on social media today and I was rolling my eyes. Yeah. 
consider the time and place. Like, I, I'm not saying he's the absolute best hire but i will say without a doubt he is the safest hire yeah that's it i think that would if i was going to make a a devil's advocate argument which i do not necessarily believe in it's that this sport is one where there's not a lot of risk taking that there is like people are risk averse and i understand that everybody's trying to protect their their own job right but that would be it that that yeah you're not gonna you're not gonna be denounced because you hired a guy who's been to a bunch of cup finals right like i i I get it so, okay, so put yourself in Chris Drury's shoes. First off, you've got one of the most mercurial owners in pro sports mm-hmm. who, like, quite literally has facial ID tracking of <laughs> blocking people to enter the arena for people that have criticized him publicly. Yep. Okay, so let's let's consider who he works for first. Yes. Then let's look at... The team that got to the conference final maybe a year ahead of time, two seasons ago, and took a step back this year and lost in the first round. Mm -hmm. You've got one of the best, you've got maybe the best goalie of his generation, a Norris Trophy winner on the back end, and a team loaded with forward talent. Is this really the time to, like, Chris Drury's not going to get another bullet. Mm -hmm. As well-respected as Chris Drury is and the moves that he's made, I'm telling you right now, the owner was up his arse in November saying, <laughs> get rid of Gerard Glenn. It was November and he was like 14 months on the job. Yeah. So let's consider the background. And then let's say you have a guy sitting here that has taken three different franchises to the Stanley Cup final, won it once, and has found mostly immediate success in his stops. I was there in Philly, comes in, in in early in the season, team sneaks into the playoffs as the seventh seed, beating, by the way, the Rangers in a shootout in game 82 of the season, goes on to the cup final in the Flyers. Mm-hmm. Second year with the Nashville Predators, they go to their first ever Stanley Cup final. He's the winningest American-born coach of all time, who, by the way, happened to play his only NHL games in a Rangers uniform. Tell me why he's not a good hire. I can't. Honestly, I, I I thought he was an interesting look maybe for the Toronto Maple Leafs who seemed like intent on keeping Sheldon Keefe. And I mean, Keefe would be, yeah, hey, they went outside the box for giving a guy his first uh, go around as a head coach of a National Hockey League team. And he's been very successful during the regular season. But yeah, postseason success hasn't been there. Would it have been a better move? Um, I mean, hard to say it would be worse as far as playoff uh, performance is concerned to go with a guy. And I guess that was the whole appeal of Mike Babcock, and that didn't work out either. So there's arguments on both sides. But, yeah, I could have seen a, a world where, yeah, yeah, in comes Brad for living, out goes Sheldon Keefe, and in comes Peter Laviolette, and a lot of people saying, okay, this makes a lot of sense. This is a guy who has a postseason track record. I mean, that's that's what you long for and ask for. It doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen. And at the end of the day, like, the coaches still just coach. It's mm-hmm. the players who have to go out and execute. As good a job as Bruce Cassidy has done, and I think he's, I think he's the master tactician in the NHL today. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a single better coach in the NHL X's and O's than Bruce Cassidy. Look at the success that they've had with their goaltending it almost feels like you can change out the nameplate and the guy any given game mm-hmm. and get similar results. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that said, if I'm Chris Drury and I know that this is my last bullet, as much as I am intrigued by Chris Knobloch 
who's coaching in the AHL in Hartford, who's won at every level he's been at, or pick a guy, uh, Mitch Love, whoever it may be, the next up-and-comer. You may get the next John Cooper or Scotty Bowman or whoever it may be. I'm still probably picking the safe guy every time. Yeah, me too. Yeah, you can't go wrong with it. Um, You mentioned goaltending a little bit there, and it does feel like the Leafs are set in goal with Ilya Samsonov and Joseph Wall, and, I mean, Matt Murray, wherever he may go. Like, that seems like, obviously, the the guy that they're going to try and cast off and maybe have to staple a pick to his back to to send him out of town. But it's not every season that you get this type of available goaltender via trade, whether it be Connor Hellebuck, Carter Hart, John Gibson. Like, those guys are all out there. Like, do you you think the Maple Leafs do do dip their toe in the the goaltending trade waters? I I don't know enough yet to confidently answer Mm. the question. I I think they could use the support. um, And I think that they, given... Well, first off, we know Samsonov is due a, a pretty sizable raise. Yep. Like he, he's he's going to – he's not going to double his pay, but he's going to come close. So what kind of term does he get? And then also, who is he playing with? Is it going to be Wall? Like, Do you feel confident enough to go with that as a tandem? I would say based on where this team is at and the success – that's riding on the other end of the goaltending situation to be able to go back to the idea of being safe, like to get some warm and fuzzies and be able to sleep at night. I know I'd want someone that has some kind of pedigree or track record that is also reliable. Mm-hmm. And I said, and also reliable because in parentheses, that's not Matt Murray. No, it's not. Uh, I wonder if it's, it's John Gibson who, I mean, had a sub 900 save percentage on the worst team in hockey. This, this past season like where where is your confidence level that that he is still uh an elite level goaltender see i don't think he's an elite level goalie i think he's a better than average goalie mm-hmm. and that 899 by the way was exactly league average save percentage this year yeah and he did it facing the most rubber in the league and gave up the most goals in the league mm-hmm. so i i really think though when you consider the goaltending position I don't, I don't think you need to spend an arm and a leg. Um, the way I view it is really kind of simplistic. There's five or six players in this goalies in this league that you can reasonably rely on year in and year out to be at that level. And it's pretty rare that one of them ends up coming up for grabs like Hellebuck is. Mm-hmm. Um so Hellebuck is in that five or six for me. It's like Sorokin, um, Shesterkin, Saros, Vasilevsky, Hellebuck. It's that sort of group of elite, elite guys. And then I think you have the next tier down. And those guys are kind of not always available, but the difference and tough part about that next tier down, including someone like a Jacob Markstrom, for instance, is you get a year like last year where he goes from 922 to 890. Yeah. And he costs your team the playoffs. Yeah. Goaltending is voodoo, man. It's, it's, it is. <laughs> it's really hard to bank on. Um, so you could spend Aiden Hill money at two point whatever and get reasonably close to that goaltending uh-huh. that you, you, you could get from one of the next tier down guys. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, 
Leafs could go into a season with Ilya Samsonov and Joseph Wall and, and uh, you know, the, the relatively unproven tandem that exists there, and those guys could be the, the best goalies in the National Hockey League next year. Like, yeah, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, I, I wonder how you – I mean, so many Leaf fans are, are ready to wave goodbye to Nick Robertson, no fault of his own, that, like, this guy just had this cloud of, of lack of health hanging over his head after kind of emerging as a, a second-round pick and one of the top prospects uh, for, the, for the Toronto Maple Leafs. If, if he is being dangled in trade, and I think that was probably already happening at the deadline last year, like, what is his value because of his, his lack of, of on-ice production, mostly because of, of the health? I mean, it's, it's not very high. I would say he's someone that had his name, his last name been something else and his brother not have been a player who's taken off in this league. Like I doubt we're even really paying much attention to him. Mm. Is that fair to say? Well, yeah. I mean, part of it, it, that's definitely a part of it. I think, yeah. Being the top Leafs prospect is also part of it, right? (laughs) Well, but that's also a, a product of where the Leafs have drafted that you have a guy that's taken at 53rd overall that all of a sudden becomes the best of what's in the organization, which doesn't really, you know, he might be the sixth best guy in a, in a deeper organization. Mm-hmm. No, it's a, it's a good point. Um, we don't get to see Snoop Dogg. We don't get to see Ryan Reynolds in this league, which is a bummer, man. I, I'm sure Gary Bettman feels it's a bummer as well. He likes the like billion dollar price tag on the Ottawa Senators uh, to uh a minority Habs owner, Michael Andlo, Andlauer. Um, anything about the process surprise you as it, as it seems like it's just a matter of putting pen to paper now? Just how long it took. I mean, this seemed, Michael Andlauer seemed like the NHL's preferred selection for a long time. And you know what Gary Bettman likes more than Ryan Reynolds or Snoop Dogg? Well, he likes money. predictability. Oh, he and money. He likes control. And money. And and money. Money <laughs> helps. But know this, Michael Anlauer had put in the lowest bid of the four that were the finalists that had put deposits down. Oh, interesting. And I think part of the reason why, if I were to handicap this drug out as long as it did, is because they were trying to increase that number to from 850 to basically they squeezed out an extra $100 million from the guy that they wanted to get. And at some point when he finally said in the last 48 to 72 hours, enough, I'm done with this, either we're doing it or we're not, is when all of a sudden, magically, it got done. Yeah. That is interesting. Uh, what's next for the Sens, you think? Pierre Dorian out? Like what, and the Alex DeBrincat situation? I mean, I guess he has to be sold on the, on the future of this team, or is this just a matter of, of I mean, it, it didn't really matter. He was, uh, he was never going to re-sign with the Sens. What, what, what do you think is next for the Ottawa Senators? Um, well, just a, as a, a procedural matter, like it's going to take a while to get this pushed through. Like think about when you, you come to an agreement of sale on a house that you want to buy, it kind of takes like 30 to 60, maybe 90 days to close. Mm-hmm. And so there's a formal board of governors approval that needs to come. It, it's a mere rubber stamp, given that Michael Anlauer has quite literally already had a seat at the table at the Board of Governors meetings as right. an already owner of the Montreal Canadiens. So that that part will be easy, but it's it's the next Board of Governors meeting happens to be next Wednesday. And I was told this morning from league officials that it's, quote, highly doubtful that something like this could come together that quickly to get an approval. I don't know if they do a such thing as a conditional approval, but point being, 
to answer the question of what's next for the Sens on and off the ice front office wise, when are the keys turned over to Michael Anlauer? And if, if it's going to take a while, will the group that's currently running the Sens, meaning Eugene Melnick's daughters and the board, will they enact the changes that Michael Anlauer would like to do, whatever they may be, which everyone seems to think includes bringing Steve Steos on from the Edmonton Oilers yeah. and making a change at GM. And there seems to be some speculation out there that DJ Smith may be safe through this process. Hmm. Well, and, and two weeks away from the NHL draft is, and I, I know it's, it's not all at, at the GM's feet, right? And so much of the, the work has already been done, but that, that seems like pretty uh, tenuous time to, to be making a change at, at, at the GM position. No. Well, that's kind of why the everyone's been frustrated with the timing of all of this. Is mm-hmm. If you're changing your GM out at some point anyway, to think that you're going to have this guy making the calls and charges, you know, that's a tough spot to be in. Yeah, it is. Um, congratulations to uh, the, the, the Melnick uh, daughters who... Do well on uh, and still uh, maintain Do a ten percent. Well. Oh my god! Yeah. they knock it out of the park. <laughs> yes. I mean, think about this. This is a Sens team that has been saddled with hundreds of millions of dollars in debt and has been one of the NHL's lowest yeah. revenue-producing teams. Now earning the highest price ever committed to an NHL franchise. It's pretty pretty good. Cost. Like that makes like the owners Vinny Viola of the Florida Panthers like. Uh, wait, this is worth what now? Mm, oh, interesting. This could be a wave of 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 franchise wait, you mean sales. I could get a billion dollars for my <laughs> team. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, what Eugene spent? What less makes, than a hundred million on it? Well, that and I mean, at one point, the, their debt value calculation seemed to be almost as much as what the franchise was worth in general, like five, six, seven years ago. Wow. Well, uh, congratulations. They were almost underwater. <laughs> Again, congratulations to them, and they maintain a, a 10% ownership stake as well. Uh, Frank, enjoy what could be the final hockey game of the season tonight. Will do. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. You too. Frank Cervelli, Director of Hockey Content for DailyFaceOff.com. When we come back, the Blue Jays come back, and they return to action against the American League East, which uh, you you may recall has not treated them all so well. Last time we saw their own division, Blue Jays were in the midst of a 2-9, 11-game stretch through divisional opponents. It's the Baltimore Orioles tonight in Baltimore. We'll talk to Nick Ashburn, baseball writer, has a story on sportsnet.ca right now about potential Blue Jays uh, starting pitching trade targets. He joins me next. The Fan Drive Time continues. I'm Ben Anna, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Merrick Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I am Ben Ennis. And like an oasis in the desert, Friday, June 23rd, beckons. That's when the Blue Jays return home after an off day on Thursday for a Friday game against the Oakland A's. And uh, between now and then, they got the Baltimore Orioles on the road for three games starting tonight. And then you go to Texas to play this 
Rangers team that doesn't appear to be going anywhere in the AL West. You got a surprising Miami Marlins team with a guy that's going to hit 400 this year. It's been a, a tough road to hoe for the Toronto Blue Jays, especially within the division. Uh, they look to change that narrative tonight against a upstart Orioles team. Let's talk to Nick Ashburn. Baseball writer uh, has a story out on uh, sportsnet.ca right now about potential Blue Jays starting pitching trade targets. He joins me now. How's it going, Nick? Good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Thanks for doing it. Thanks for writing the article on sportsnet.ca. But I got to say, I'm looking at all those names, and yeah, you're right. They are available. Chase Anderson, bring them back. Uh, No, they don't exactly... Uh, get the, the the juices flowing necessarily, but you know who does? Like Trevor Richards with that high strikeout rate. Then you kind of feel like the, the Blue Jays kind of maybe stumbled into something with that 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 opener situation. At least after one start, I know in the back end of it didn't go so well. But like when the actual high leverage guys are available for the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings, weren't you kind of uh, impressed with the first seven innings of that thing? Oh yeah, I mean it, it absolutely worked until it didn't. Right, like Trevor Richards looks very good. Francis looked good as well. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how or if they're able to stretch Richards out. When I wrote that piece, you know, then I knew the names were not going to be appealing to a ton of people, but they have this very specific need right now where I don't think you want a bullpen game every fifth day because then if one of your starters just has one of those nightmare starts where they go two, three innings, suddenly you end up in this massive, massively difficult spot. So at some point you probably want someone who's giving you I don't know, four or five. Richards maybe can do that. We don't really know just yet, but he looks fantastic. He's been looking good for, for weeks now, and I know that he's a guy that Blue Jays fans don't always love, but he's brought something a little bit different this year, and he's been impressive. Yeah, cutting down on the repertoire certainly seems to work for him. Um, so it's it's not a panicky situation because, yeah, like I said, the, the first seven innings of that Saturday game went really well, and you know Adam Simber and Mitch White, uh, you, I guess you don't want them in leverage. Uh, you never did. Uh, it certainly didn't work out on that occasion. But it's pretty crazy, Nick, that we're talking about this team for the first time this season just needing a six-starter and they got nobody, right? Like, it's a, it's an opener day. And again, it worked out. But like, and Bowden Francis, I guess, is part of the answer at, at AAA. But if it like wasn't him, there's literally no one else. When, when you look at at maybe the failures of this front office to this point in some of the, the, the roster soft spots, I mean, how quickly do you get to no starting pitching depth? Oh, I mean, it's, it's interesting with Manoa out of the picture, right? Because he always used to be able to say, well, they have this amazing achievement in Alec Manoa. And I'm not saying that he's not going to come back and be a top of the rotation starter at some point. But when he's out of the picture, the guys they have in the rotation now who are largely pitching well are all free agents uh, and trade acquisitions they've brought in. And they really haven't been able to develop anyone. You know, Yazar Zulueta is technically down there. He ended up being more of a bullpen guy. Uh, you lost Drew Hutchison, who you brought in, but, you know, Zach Thompson, Casey Lawrence, like these are guys that nobody wants to see at the big league level, to be frank. And over the last few years, you know, Ricky Tiedemann is in theory coming along here, but they've had a really hard time producing just guys who can hang, like mm-hmm. not necessarily a top of the rotation guy, not someone who's making all-star games, but someone who could be a fourth starter, a fifth starter, and those guys don't grow on trees, but other guys, other teams seem able to dig them up. You know, like the Cleveland Guardians always seem to have about four guys like that, and the Blue Jays can't seem to get one of them going. 
No, they had Nick Frasso, and they traded him for a guy who apparently can't even hang as a starter, right? Like, Mitch White has been demoted from starter to bulk guy, uh, bulk guy giving up grand slams guy, right? Like, it's 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 that that one in particular stands out. And not to say that Frasso is going to be some Cy Young Award contender, but it, it does appear to be killing it uh, at double A for, for the Dodgers this season. Is there some, like unique trait that this this front office is targeting that it's is not working out like what did they see in Mitch White that they didn't see in Nick Frasso that one in particular that 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 stands out yeah I mean I think that there was a little bit of desperation there like that leads to the Mitch White trade and now Ross Stripling ended up working out pretty well for the Blue Jays but that was a similar deal where they had to give up pretty real prospects to get guys who are back the rotation slash swing men like guys. And you'd like to believe that you're able to develop players who fit that, you know, Trent Thornton's a guy, for instance, who was supposed to be kind of that player. Uh, and it didn't end up working out even after a decent rookie year. Like they, you know, that you can look at many of the cases. There's been different issues with the guys that are trying to develop, whether it's injury issues, like what happened to Nate Pearson or performance. Uh, it's gone sideways in a variety of ways. And you can kind of look back and say, Oh, they drafted this guy. And that was, a fine idea in theory and they got some bad luck but at the end of the day the results are the results and if over you know a course of six years or so seven years to the front office you're unable to graduate guys again not stars just guys who can handle a back of the rotation role like that is a pretty severe indictment on your player development system it just is yeah, it, it it shouldn't be a situation where you need to go out and get a Drew Hutchison, right? And a, a guy that opted out of his minor league deal. But no, those guys should be should be able to create league average um, pitchers in your minor league system. Maybe one of those guys will emerge, but at this point, doesn't look so good. Uh, let's give him some credit, though, with the bullpen, which, again, didn't look so great in the final couple innings on Saturday. But so many fans rightly pointing to the lack of swing and miss out of this bullpen last year. They're second in major league baseball and strikeout rate coming out of the bullpen. And a lot of that is Trevor Richards finding um, himself as one of the leading strikeout getters and swing and miss getters. And, and Nate Pearson being in the bullpen this year certainly helps. I mean, that, 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 that does leap off the page when you're talking about, and I know it's only like Nate Pearson and and Jordan Romano who throw upper nineties, but it, it must be said that there is plenty of swing and miss out of this blue Jays bullpen. Yeah, and, you know, Swanson is another great example of that, right? Like, he's got a K per 9 in the 11s right now. And that's what you expected from him when you got him. Like, there's a reason that, uh, you know, he's a tough guy to get in a trade with the years of control he has. But you bring in Swanson, you bring up Pearson, Richards takes that step forward, and you feel a lot differently about your ability in those leverage spots. When men are on base, you've got that guy on third base and one out, and you desperately need that strikeout. And in 2022, it really didn't feel like they had someone to go to in that type of situation. Uh, and often they ended up stretching Romano on larger stints, and he's been really good, and there's times when he's able to handle that. But in an ideal scenario, you've got a couple of guys in your bullpen you can go to when you desperately need the other team to not put the ball in play. And that's the case right now. You know, Pearson is fantastic. Swanson had a little bit of a wobble there. He's on his way back. We'll see what Richard's role is. But you know, could you do with another player in this bullpen? For sure. You know, there's some Adam Simber moments we've seen over the last few days. Thomas Hatch is holding down a roster spot at the moment. Uh, you know, it's not a perfect situation, but it's definitely a step forward from last year. Yeah, you know, I, I, I vacillate back and forth as to what the expectation should be from a depth perspective, because no team in Major League, in Major League Baseball has like a separate uh, Major League 
caliber team just waiting at AAA, right? Like, that's unreasonable to expect. I do think, like, having one starter is probably reasonable. I also think that, like, having a 26th roster spot that is, like, more than nothing is is probably reasonable to expect. Like, Brandon Belt, I haven't seen the lineup today, but he hasn't, to my knowledge, been put on the IL. With him out, you're look like, Nathan Lucas is is playing in games, and, like, if it's not him, it's Kevin Biggio, who I know has looked a little bit better recently. I mean, back to the criticizing of the roster, that looks perilously thin. If we're, we're only talking about the major league depth and, and Brandon Belt, the 35-year-old, coming off of knee surgery, I mean, it's, 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 it would have been a, a miracle to expect him to be healthy all season long and that the options behind him, who are they? It's tough. It is, it is a difficult situation because the Blue Jays have largely been really healthy this year. And so it's something they haven't had to confront that often. But if you look at the you know the major league bench right now, you got Heineman, you got Espinal, you got Biggio, you got Lucas. Like Biggio, like you said, he's been improving significantly in recent weeks. But there aren't guys there who you want to start for a month if one of your guys has a nasty injury. And it's not like there are guys at AAA who are just kind of waiting there. You know, you got Spencer Horwitz and Otto Lopez, guys like that. But it's not like there are guys who are in AAA, and the only reason they're in AAA is because they need to get full time at bats right now generally speaking, like these guys are not guys that they want to see at the big league level. So if, if the Blue Jays were to have a really significant injury that had someone out for a long period of time, they'd have to consider looking outside the organization. And that's, you know, as the trade deadline is a ways away now, the prices on players is going to be high. That's not an easy thing to do. How, how curious are you about Spencer Horowitz at the major league level? Because I, I he plays first base and he doesn't have a bunch of power. Well, I mean, must be said that the first base in the Blue Jays employ right now doesn't have a bunch of power either. But um, he's just hit like every season at the minor league level. You you look at at the the walks and strikeouts and they're pretty much one to one. And and I know it's AAA uh, pitching, but he's left handed. Like, are, are you curious at all about what a Spencer Horowitz is? Uh, I, I can't say I'm a big Spencer Horowitz guy. It is tough when a, when a player is as defensively limited as he is. And since he came to AAA, you know, we're looking at approximately 100 games and he has four home runs. But yeah. I know that he walks. I know that he doesn't strike out a ton. But it is just so hard to make that kind of profile work at pr- mainly first base. And it might be that he can come up and have one of those runs like early career Kevin Biggio, where his plate discipline is really carrying him. But I have a hard time believing that he's going to be an answer for the Blue Jays at some point this season. I'm with you, but I mentioned it. Vlad's still sitting on zero home home runs this season. And and he's, listen, he's going to hit a home run at Rogers Center. I, I believe that to to be uh, a fact that will play itself out this season. But at what point are you, are you looking at what's happening this year with the sapped power and honestly, the, the, the plate appearances and the approaches that we've seen, especially recently. And at what point do you start to really get concerned about what's happening with Vlad? I mean, I'm, I'd still consider myself a big believer in just the power that he brings. You can look at any stack cast number under the sun, like he hits the ball hard and he's actually, hasn't been quite as bad in terms of pounding the ball into the dirt as he's been at some points during his career. I'm inclined to believe it'll come around. You know, Roger center is playing weirdly so far. Like it has played like a big time pitchers park. I don't think that that'll necessarily carry over, but it's possible that, you know, that they said before the off season, they said, you know, we're bringing the walls up in, but we're moving them up and we think the whole thing will be a wash so far. That hasn't really been the case. Is that a justification for him not hitting a single home run there? 
Obviously not. Like, he needs to produce more power than he's producing now. But I'm not really raising the alarm on him just yet because there are a lot of things that he's doing that are strong. We've seen him have slumps before. Even during his 2021 season, he had that August that was not particularly strong. So as far as the Blue Jays' list of problems goes, the worry that Vladdy's not going to be powerful enough or impactful enough is, in my opinion, relatively low on the list. The, the Rogers Center thing is super interesting because the Blue Jays are bottom 10 and homers at home this season. Part of it is the Vlad thing. The homer, uh, homer rate is super low, too, as far as uh, home runs per fly ball. Um, I, that being said, like, I don't, I don't remember a lot of fly balls just like dying at the warning track, right? It's 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 not like when when the when uh, opposing teams go to Petco Park and you know the home announcers say marine layer, right? Whereas these balls like the the force field keeps them from going out because that that ballpark is super pitcher friendly. But I mean the numbers do suggest that that something weird is is happening there, Nick. Like at at what point are do we have to kind of just accept the fact that what they've done with Rogers Center? is more friendly to the pitchers than it is for the hitters. I mean, that's been the case so far. Uh, I'm pulling it up right now. It's been the 21st friendliest park for home runs, according to Statcast. So that's an unusual position for Roger Center, which has generally been you know, a little bit hitter-friendly in the past, uh, maybe more neutral than some people think. I will say that when people look at park factor data, they normally use three-year chunks. Like, yeah. this is... Like, it's a type of thing we almost never look at at a sample list small. So it is interesting. It is something to follow. I think it's the type of thing where you kind of put a pin and say, let's revisit this in a year and see what happened. But as you say, so far, you know, everything we have seen to this point has been this park playing in a way that's more pitcher friendly than expected. I don't know if we can be sure that's going to hold up, but it is something very interesting to watch through the season. How would you feel about that? It's like, say, the. Blue Jays now played in New Petco, right? And <laughs> and it it really it, the offense was down, and it would certainly hinder the the viewing experience aesthetically. Fans they they dig the long ball. We understand that, but is there not a case to be made that there's it's like a little bit easier to build your team in a pitcher friendly ballpark? You know what costs a lot of money, it's like big sluggers, right? Like, and if you can just, if you can bring everybody's offense down to a a, a degree where yeah, everybody's uh, homer power is is decreased. Is that not like an advantage if you know that, if you know half of your games are going to be played in a ballpark like that? Yeah, I mean, on the flip side, maybe you need really big sluggers because absolutely no one else is getting wall mm. scrapers out there. So maybe there's a, even more value in those players. I will say that let's say the ball is staying in the park more than usual, which has certainly been the case so far. The team the Blue Jays have in 2023 I think suits that a little bit better. Like you have that great outfield defense. Thanks to Kiermaier and Varsho. Uh, you got, you have guys like Whit Merrifield who just put the ball in play and run like a, a team in, I don't know, the 2021 Toronto blue Jays that were more about just yanking balls down the left field line and getting them out for home runs might struggle here in terms of winning more than this group could in theory, because they, you know, they're decent when the ball goes into play and the defense is better than it's been in quite a while. All right. So thank you for bringing up uh, the 2022 Blue Jays who hit a bunch of home runs uh, and they were a top five offense in all of Major League Baseball, like uh, uh, like top one offense in the American League in, in a lot 
of statistical measures. And there's there's reason to believe that this 2023 Blue Jays offense is a lot better than we've seen. Like the runners in scoring position luck has been, yeah, it's been weirdly out of whack, right, for a long time. And I guess the beginning of last season was kind of the same thing. So that'll turn itself around, you would think, and, and it would boost the overall numbers. But there is something, like you said, you know, th- that team really did like to turn on the ball, like to hit it out to left field, the right-handed hitters. There was nothing but right-handed hitters. Uh, they, they really seemed intent on hitting the ball out of the ballpark, which can infuriate people at times, especially when they're rolling over balls or striking out in situations where contact would have been beneficial. But the, the flip side of that is that you can go through like prolonged runner in scoring position slumps like this Blue Jays team has gone through basically, I mean, for two months, certainly May, uh, April, the offense seemed a little bit better. Do you think there's an approach thing happening here when, when we look at the the decrease in in power across the board? I mean, a lot of it is personnel, right? Like you bring in Kevin Kiermaier, you don't expect him to hit bombs. You know, Brandon Belt is maybe more of a gap-to-gap guy than a pure power guy. Teoscar Hernandez is out the door. So there's there's some things involved with that in terms of the approach of the players themselves. I think there's something to it. You know, the strikeout rate right now, for instance, I believe is the fourth lowest in all of baseball. Like that is not... Now, Blue Jays haven't been a huge strikeout team, but that's not something you would necessarily associate with the guys they have on this roster. You know, in the isolated powers, middle of the pack, it is just kind of odd because there have been changes, undoubtedly, but it's still, you know, you still got Springer and Bichette and Vladdy and Chapman and guys you've seen before. And at the same time, like, it is a very different offense. It's an offense that is putting the ball in play more and striking out less and hitting fewer home runs. And maybe this weird park stuff that's going on is part of that, but there's a different feel to this offense. And right now, you said the runners in scoring positions issue when you have an offense that needs to kind of pile up hits in order to bring around guys. Uh, sometimes when you're having trouble just getting those hits, that's an issue. Whereas if you're hitting more home runs, maybe you're hitting fewer hits, but you're having more of those scenarios where you're bringing in two, three, four guys at a time and your struggles don't seem as bad. But longer term, I'm not super worried about this team with runners in scoring position. That kind of stuff tends to come around in time, even though I understand why folks are so infuriated in the moment because it sucks to see opportunities go by the wayside, and that certainly happens to this team in recent weeks. Yeah, it's my professional opinion that home runs are good and the Blue Jays should hit more of them. Um, Yeah, Uh, the starting pitching has been pretty good, and Chris Bassett goes tonight. He's averaging seven innings per start since the start of May, and only Nate Avaldi is averaging more over that span. Uh, Kevin Gossman's been so good basically all season long, except when he faces the twins, like what, hopefully the blue Jays, you know, one, they end up in the playoffs, but if they get into the playoffs, it's not Kevin Gossman against the Minnesota twins, because something weird, I think you would agree is happening, Nick, between Kevin Gossman and the twins, as far as their ability to lay off that splitter out of the zone. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's weird because Gosman is so good at what he does. His chase rate is so elite. It's so hard to hold up on his splitter that whenever it seems like a team doesn't do it, it's like for most players, if it, if they're one of their pitches isn't working, it's like, okay, it's just not working that day. It's not a big deal. But with Gosman, it like, it goes to a conspiracy theory level because yeah. he's so good that whenever it goes wrong, it's this huge event. And I'm not saying that in the sense that the twins don't have something on him, but they might. It's just weird because he's reached a level where anything but teams rolling over and striking out 11 times uh, strikes us as this massive event. You know, I'd never, I'd never be scared to throw Gosman out against anybody, but mm-hmm. it's certainly been a weird one against the Twins, that's for sure. It has been. Um, watching Alec Manoa this season when he was in the major leagues was weird, um, but he's, he's trying to get back to form 
in in Dunedin right now, but playing the role of uh, secondary ace is Chris Bassett, right? Like, save for start number one of the season and inning number one of his second start, he's played the part. And I mentioned the 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 run of of extended outings recently. Like, how comfortable would you be in starting Chris Bassett in game two of a postseason series? I mean, I think he's absolutely earned that. Like, I was skeptical of Bassett in terms of not necessarily him being a poor signing, but him being able to replicate his success in Oakland and New York because a lot of it came from the fact, you know, we're talking about ballparks. Like, he played in very much pitcher's ballparks, and a big part of his success was keeping balls from flying over the fence. And so I felt when he came to Toronto, that might be more of an issue. Of course, you know, now what's going on, it hasn't been as much of an issue, although he has given up some home runs. And he's been fantastic lately. You know, the way he mixes up pitches, you know, he doesn't have that blow people away stuff. It doesn't seem to matter. Like his ERAs by year, you know, 229, 315, 342, 329. Like what more do you want from a guy in terms of keeping runs off the board, which is ultimately what you need from a playoff performance. Uh, last one before I let you go. It was not that long ago we were talking about how all Orioles fans must be looking at this Blue Jays team. These two teams meeting in that wild card game in 2016 and how they've gone in opposite directions and how envious they must be of, of the Blue Jays' ability to, to restock the cupboards. Well, yeah, she was on the other foot uh, these days as the Orioles did nothing to uh, boost this roster in free agency and spending money this offseason and still they, they're hanging in in the American League East I mean, it is early. Adley Rutschman's a star. We get it. Like, there's a bunch of guys that aren't going anywhere. But, like, roster for roster, in 2023, are the Orioles better than the Blue Jays? I would say no. I mean, I know the record is what the record is, but the starting pitching for the Orioles is just so much worse, in my opinion, than what the Blue Jays have that I'm inclined to believe there's going to be a speed bump for them somewhere along the way they kind of feel like the 2016 Cleveland team where it's like, you need to get a, you need to get a lead on them in the first five innings. Or sometimes it feels like you're kind of done because their bullpen is really good and they can hit as well. But just the five guys that they're sending out, I, I don't see this as a roster that's going to be able to keep up the wins that it's, you know, the winning rate that it's had so far. Now it's already gotten a leg up on some people and it might be enough to hold on to a playoff spot. I don't want to be totally dismissive of where they go from here, but my belief would be that the Blue Jays have a better roster than the Orioles. Yep, uh, but I would probably take the the Orioles going forward. But yeah, for this year, uh, I, for twenty twenty three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Nick, I appreciate the time. Thanks. No problem. Have a good one. You too. There's Nick Ashburn, baseball writer. Again, story on Sportsnet.ca about uh, potential Blue Jays starting pitching trade targets. Um, but if they just get Trevor Richards striking out seven over three every fifth day, and then you know, somebody to to come in behind him for a couple innings, piecing it together. I, I think that's more than acceptable. Certainly more acceptable than rolling the dice, giving up something, anything of consequence for a Chase Anderson. We did the Chase Anderson thing, didn't we? And we had enough. Uh, don't have a Blue Jays lineup yet, um, but they start a three-game series in Baltimore against an Orioles team that it wasn't very long ago the Blue Jays actually had a better run differential then, uh, but as it stands, finds themselves five games up on the Blue Jays and uh, only five games out of first place in the American League East. Winners of four in a row. All right. That'll do it for a special edition of the Fan Drive Time as we brought you the introductory news conference for Darko Ryakovich. Uh, coming up next, we've got a special edition of the Raptor Show. 
where you will hear from Darko Ryakovich, new Raptors head coach. That's coming up next. This has been the Fan Drive Time. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590, The Fan.